Welcome to episode six of uh, the Sunglasses at Night podcast, mm. which is, um, it's all about glasses, wearing them in the nighttime, those sorts of things, That's right. as well as occasionally speaking about the top hits from the ARIA charts. Um, this year is 1988. 1988. Oh. Wow. That was a big year. It was, yeah. Look, it's um, Australia's bicentennial year. We did tease that this episode would be a bicentennial <laughs> special. Um, didn't really do any work during the week to come up with anything for the bicentennial special. But it's um, our memories are so vivid. Abs- oh, they are. I don't think anyone that was alive in '88 really needs any, you know, reminding of just what a great year it was. Um, the year they ran out of green and yellow paint. They did, absolutely. There's green and yellow everywhere, all over the place. Um, Colours of Australia. Colours of Australia, for sure. Not on our flag. They're not on the flag at all, but um, look, I guess if you mix together the colour, no, it doesn't work (laughs) either. Yellow is a primary. Yeah, I don't really know, but look. sheer amount of green and yellow that was going around that year. What they've done is, I guess they've sort of said, hey, if we ever do become a republic one day, let's go with a green and yellow theme, so let's get the public primed now um, some 80 years in advance, because it's probably not going to happen for some time. I think it's because it's the wattle, possibly. Yeah. You know, because... That is, after all, the only green and yellow plant that, <laughs> that I can exists. think of. Exactly. Exactly. So, look, Bicentennial Year, for those that don't know, um, it represented 200 years of uh, European settlement, which at the time, <laughs> nowadays... Um, People look, throw words words like slavery around. They do words throw. Words like colonialism. For sure. For sure. <laughs> look, um, yeah, Australia Day is a very contentious day in the year 2021, divisive. Um, and look, in 1988... Uh, that didn't seem to be the case based on the promotional no. material that no, I, I've had a look at in retrospect. No, certainly not something we heard a lot about. For sure. Um, look, obviously, back then, everyone that was in primary school received some sort of coin that said, hey, it's been 200 years since uh, <laughs> the first fleet came. That was and- a legal tender $5 coin. Yep. Which... Um, that was kind of exciting. In Australia, there is no $5 coin. No. So, you know, that was kind of fun. Absolutely. And we just, we, we celebrated, well, not everyone did, I guess, but a lot of people celebrated um, to the extreme with, with green and yellow paint, as Thomas said, um, and also just some great songs. Now, this is a show, um, this is a podcast that's about music, yet... Ironically, we don't play any music, but mm. I think this week we will. We're going to play um, Celebration of a Nation, the <laughs> 1988, I guess, promotional material for um, the Bicentennial. Kind the of re- a temporary anthem. Temporary anthem. We've chosen this because we figure this is the song that has the least likelihood that someone's going to try and sue us <laughs> or try and claim that we take it down or get any sort of money off us whatsoever because anyone that's responsible for writing this I assume has sort of disowned it or died or one of those things so <laughs> but um we'll play the song now and this was played everywhere for yes. a year full on 
multiple yep. times a day, yeah. free-to-air television. And just to set the scene, the video clip does, does feature all the big names um, of the time. Uh, Rick Price. Denise Drysdale. <laughs> Um, All the big names um, singing this great song. That so, guy who played John Lennon in that musical. Oh, everybody. You name them, <laughs> they were involved with this. Apart, But no Indigenous people, from what I can see. There's so, one. There's, there's one. one. It's a, to, to, in case, you know, it's not a very complicated video. You're basically looking at... Well, we can describe it as it goes along. Absolutely, but yeah. It's basically a lot of people, and I mean maybe... A hundred or two hundred standing in front of Uluru, and I think there's perhaps one indigenous person. Dare I say, because no indigenous person will want to take part in this, because um, let's give them the credit of saying that they were asked, they but were asked, not sure. But in the reality, they probably were not asked. <laughs> yes. But hey, that's okay. It, as is the disdain that well, they've um, got one. You know, they did representation. They did. In 1988, that was representation. <laughs> I think there's some chicks scattered up the back as well. Absolutely. So please enjoy the power. That is celebration of a nation. Have you noticed something happening? Something going on Sounds like here. I remember when Rock was young. Have you noticed? There's a feeling. Some guy with a mullet. Of something there was a bit of didge there at the start, if you heard. It's a feeling that keeps growing. Fashion designer whose name I've forgotten. Was Dawn Fraser there? Yes, um, she seems to. <laughs> Bert Newton. In case you're wondering if we know who the singers are, we do not. No. They kind of half ring a bell. They probably co-hosted Sale of the Century or something. <laughs> <laughs> John English. John English. Just a giant crowd of whiteness, (laughs) including the slightly out of time hand clapping. It was never specifically clear with what we were supposed to give them a hand other uh, than making it great. Absolutely. ADA. What it was, I don't know. They never really specify that, give us a hand celebration of a nation. Is it give us a hand to just generally celebrate? I'm not really sure. But um, look, that got me pumped up. I'm pumped as all hell <laughs> like it is 1988. Um, I feel like I've travelled back in time to then. Um, I'm drinking a West Coast cooler, um, just enjoying the day. Um, fantastic. Is <laughs> down if, at the docks, you're watching the tall ships I'm down, come in. I'm down at the docks, I'm watching the tall ships come 58, in. 58,000 other people were there. And it seemed like a simpler time, Tom, before people really... Um, they enjoyed Australia Day because they hadn't bothered to think about what it actually represents. <laughs> so they just went, it's all fun, we're having some drinks, we're watching the ships come in, we're letting off fireworks... We've spent no time considering um, some of the negative connotations of what it may be no. to celebrate a day that effectively is, I guess, sort of um, the, the the beginning of, you know, the downfall of, of uh, you know, a very old, well, the world's oldest civilization yes. in terms of the indigenous people of Australia. But back, people didn't care about that. No, I mean, also just from a logistical level, nobody else was just sort of pointing out the very simple and obvious fact that 
we Australia was not an orbiting planetoid that was discovered by a British spaceship. <laughs> no. That, like numerous other European countries, had already accidentally pranged into Australia. And I think if Captain Cook hadn't showed up when he did, there was a French guy just waiting in a boat, yep. you know, about two days away. So we could have had, you know, 200 years of edible food, you know, in a completely different culture, you know. So, you know, I'm just saying. I will say one thing in Australia's credit... People were way, way, way more excited about Sydney getting the Olympic Games than anybody was about the bicentennial. I That's think that, gen- that was an event that genuinely did unite everybody, and there was no stupid TV promotional thing required. People, when people flipped out when they got the Olympics. Yep. There were like mammoth street parties, year like six years before, just when it was simply announced yep. that we were getting it. Like people know, going ape shit. Compared sure. to that, some green and yellow stuff and that shit song did not excite people too much. Absolutely, would um, of that song celebration of a nation would it have been better if it was in French? Because that's, I guess, something. I mean, imagine we were, you know, the first Europeans to set up. Some sort of settlement in Australia. They were French. If they were Portuguese, maybe perhaps that song. I think with a bit of Portuguese, even like the Spanish. Think, maybe if it had been written by the guy who did "I'm the King of the Divan." Oh, absolutely. Plastic Bertrand. Absolutely. If he'd got involved. Absolutely right. And and you know, look, that's you know. Yeah. In that case, sure. But we, we we didn't get that. We just had that English version. Pretty shitty. Um, yeah, look, they had 10 seconds, if that, of Didge lightly in the background to sort yeah. of say, look, we're considering the average. And standing in front of Uluru without mentioning it or nah. acknowledging what it is or who's, exactly. <laughs> who look. it might possibly have belonged to anyway. Look, dare I say in the year 2088 for the tricentennial, no one will be celebrating that shit at all. I'm no one will give a fuck. probably thinking not. Absolutely. I Assuming mean, Assuming there's still people alive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There might not be anyone alive, but yeah. Anyway, so that's uh, that's the Bicentennial special. That's it covered. I think we've conclusively, you know. Absolutely. So let's kick off Aria Charts 1988. This is an interesting year, Tom. Well, not interesting for... Well, it might be interesting. I don't know. Wait and see. I've not read what the song's going to be yet, but uh, <laughs> I've done no research. But... Um, as we mentioned at the start of this show, when we started in 1983, that was the first year of the ARIA charts. Yep, yep. that's why we started in 1983. But from 1983 until 1988, um, the ARIA charts, they just got their data from the old guy that used oh, to do it, Kent from the Kent, charts, the Kent music yep. charts. So they just got his data, collected it, sort of slapped an ARIA logo on the charts and went, you know, this is it. But we've licensed the data effectively. As of this year, 1988, that is the first year when ARIA started collecting their own data okay so they were doing it kent he was still doing it himself as well so there are interestingly a few differences between the two charts such as what well uh i don't want to ruin it tom but um all the songs (laughs) that are number one in the aria charts in 1988 and the kent music charts they're identical except for one Okay. There's one number one song that featured in the Kent charts that didn't feature in the Aria charts. And uh, maybe we'll discuss that at the very end, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, So, yeah. And then same happened next year in in 89. And then from there... So, Kent kept doing it until like 1999. But I'm not going to bother doing a side-by-side analysis because this shit goes for two and a half hours as it is every episode without thinking that it would. So once we start comparing the charts, it could go for six hours and um, 
if I don't know how many people listen to this, probably not many, but that's going to, you know, halve the, the listenership. So, uh, and, you know, I've quit my job to do this full time, which is <laughs> obviously an error of judgment, but that's okay. That's fine seeing it's, you know, there's no money coming in, but whatever. It's just for the love of it. So, um, anyway, so yeah, we'll, we'll look at that extra song later on. But anyway, first year of ARIA collecting their own data. Uh, first song for the first couple of weeks was Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up. Couple of continuing weeks from last what year. A bad start we talked about yet. that. Um, yeah, it's sort of shit. Uh, I know, yeah, we've talked about this last week. People like things ironically. Um, is is irony dead? I don't know. Is irony alive? It wasn't even alive at the time. No. So you had to take this at face value. And if face value, it's just an ugly face. Face value telling you yeah. a song sucks balls. Look, it's pretty bad, and I think we're going to come across some more Stock Aiton Waterman oh, um, over this year and the next couple of years. <laughs> and the one thing I, I just just before we move on that I do want to spell out is that when you listen to their songs and you listen to other songs, they sound just real flimsy in terms of the production values, like yes. super cheap. Mm-hmm. Like you can sort of listen to it back to back, and you know a lot of these '80s songs. I think one thing you can say about 80s pop songs is that because of the new technology, the production was generally, you know, pretty good. You can tell that, you know, yeah, the songs were are well written. They spent a lot of money. with stuff too. People were trying out new things. Absolutely. Yeah, at this time. Whereas this song sort of sounds like they've hit the preset button on a on a Yamaha yes. sort of um, synthesizer, yep. one of those sort of like, you know, yeah, you'd buy one of those synths in the early 90s, a, a Yamaha Porter Sound keyboard. There'd be yep. the sort of preset song on there. Yep. You'd press that and then you'd sing along to it. Sort of, this sort of has that sort of vibe. In a lot of the time these days, when you hear a song where someone's obviously spent half an hour writing the lyrics, yeah, or the singer's not very good, so auto tune is being used heavily to make the sound, then they will do something interesting with the production to try and make it stand out of the mass of other stuff. Absolutely. These guys at the time, it was like they just had a very cheap, rickety production line, yeah, and yeah, they weren't covering up anything. They had Rock stars who no one had ever heard of, that nobody really cared about, singing, you know, emotionally disaffected sort of half-assed ditties with, you know, the Muppet home organ supplying all of the backing soundtrack. Absolutely. Like someone just hit the preset button for Bossa Nova. Yeah, exactly. Run with that. Play that little... Look, credit where credit's due. Maybe that's why it did stand out because everything else sounded so good well, and this sounded so fucking these garbage. sold a lot of songs. So did. clearly there was a market for, you know, extremely disposable pop stuff. 100 songs in the UK top 40. Tom, oh my God. that doesn't lie. I mean, you know, I guess, yeah. What is the average IQ of a British citizen, Tom? And what <laughs> is it compared know. to the rest of the world? That's something we should, uh, we should dig into because... Um, Seems like it, it must be a couple of points lower because, just, I don't know. It does really kind of demonstrate, doesn't it, if ever proof were needed that catchiness really is its own quantity distinct from musicianship, likability, technical yeah. skill, pleasantness to listen to. It's its own little category yeah. and it's very, you know, it's very appealing in some way, enough to help you get a hundred records in the top forty. You know, exactly, like. but look, I guess um, pop music, by its very definition, is meant to be disposable. Perhaps it's not meant to have any longevity. Perhaps it's meant to just sell as many copies as it can as it comes out, 
and then you just sort of forget about it and you're on to the next one. And if that's the case, these guys are the the, the, absolute the, masters. the, the, the <laughs> masters of pop music because none of these songs have aged well. They're all absolutely terrible, but they probably all live in very nice houses in London, I imagine. I'm sure um, they do. Like I said, I'm sure they made far more money than any of the people who are now being used as ironic Oh, absolutely, absolutely that right. That sang the actual songs. Because they wrote the songs, they recorded them, they probably got all the money off yes. that. Good I'm pretty go. sure Stock, Aiken, or Waterman have all got a much larger house than Rick Astley, who I'm pretty sure lives He's out probably, of a camper van yeah, I'm under sure a he bridge does. in North Wales. Absolutely right. Um, I went to, uh, last time I was in Tokyo, Tom, I went to, there's a bar in Tokyo called the Mikella Bar. Mikella's a, a Danish, uh, no, they're from... Yeah, they are. I think they're sorry, I think they're from Denmark. They are. They're a craft brewery in in Denmark, um, yeah. and they've got various pubs across the world. And uh, the Tokyo establishment had a Rick Astley themed toilet. <laughs> now, I'm not sure what they were trying to say about that. How how did the theme uh, evince itself? Well, apparently, Rick Astley. Um, <laughs> I don't know who approached who, but I, uh, some, I think so. I think the brewery might have, uh, you know, approached Rick Astley and said, "Oh, look, do you guys, you know, want to brew a beer with me?" And he said, "I'm a big fan of beer. Let's do it." And then they sort of <laughs> rewarded him with a with a toilet that just had Rick Astley pictures in it. Sure. Um, I don't know what they're trying to say. <laughs> whether they just loved Rick Astley and thought, you know, the bar itself has a theme. We don't have any space for any pictures of you apart from in the toilet, or whether they're referring to the quality of his music being sort of similar to that of a toilet. But alas, <laughs> next time you're in Tokyo, check it out. Hopefully, it's still there. Um, yeah, enjoy that one. So, moving on, um, 18th of January, first new song of the year for one week, George Michael Faith. Mm. This one Speaking is of catchy. This is a banger. I like this one. Um, but the question is, who's the better musical entity? Is it George Michael or is it Fred Durst from Limp Bizkit? <laughs> well, Who has stood the test of time better? The I, Durst or the Michael? I think you'd have to say there was a time when it might have been the Durst. But yep. I think you'd probably have to say these days, George Michael. Yeah. You know, like even despite the certain ignominy attached to his later career... Yeah. Certain charges involving public toilets, getting yep. stoned, driving cars into hedges, that True. kind of thing. <laughs> At no point did he release an album called um, Chocolate Starfish in the Hot Dog Flavoured Water. Yep. So I think on points, you'd have to say George Michael was ahead, really. I'd say so, yeah. Look, I was going to ask if Fred Durst is the new George Michael, but I think the answer to that is a definite no. Um, I don't think anyone's suggesting... Fred Durst is a musical... is a director now. Not a musical director, just a movie director. Yeah, I have heard that. Has he done any films that any of us may have seen? No. No. I think his last film was a study, a harrowing study in um, uh, stalkerish obsession starring... uh, John Travolta oh. in a giant grey mullet playing a mentally unhinged, possibly special needs sort of man-child. <laughs> so I'm sure that was about as good as you can imagine. I'm sure Fred Durst would have handled it tastefully. I'm mm. sure the character would have been dealt with, you know, sort of treated with the respect that it deserves. I believe there's that. one scene where uh, John Travolta talks extensively about how much he loves Fred Durst. 
Which is the kind of thing that I'm sure arose organically as part of the filmmaking process. I don't, I don't, that probably wasn't in the original script, I don't think. <laughs> I think that, you know, sort of um, John would have just improvised that as a great improviser oh, is, and Fred would have just went, look, it is, a, you know, I am the director of this, but I'll keep it in because the scene was, you know, so touching and so emotional. As, I, as emotional as many of the songs that I've written. So. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Or as, yes, I mean... You know, if that's the one thing you think about Fred Durst with, it's yeah. Know, Has a genre hardest. of music um, aged worse than late nineties rap metal? <laughs> Is there? A, do you think there's? In, do you think that there's anything that sort of in the history of time people have went? Yeah, that was actually really bad. There have been other genres that lasted, you know, six months or less. I'm yep. thinking of things like electro clash springs to mind. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there were. You know, subgenres of disco that people can't even, you know, pronounce anymore. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, I mean, discounting the handful of people who are pretty good or doing something kind of different, then yeah, I mean, truly, like, yeah, it was basically people ripping off corn, wasn't it? Look, I think, I think when you look at it, people sort of you you look at today in the year twenty twenty one, and obviously. You know, hip hop is, you know, there's a lot happening in in that genre, a lot of different things. Same with probably sort of heavier music as well. And maybe, maybe, maybe someone said, look, why don't we take the creative force of hip hop, <laughs> the creative force of metal, try and mesh it together and see what can happen. And look, sure, you know, on paper, you're like, yeah, let's take two quite disparate genres, see if we can put them together, see mm-hmm. if we can get the creativity happening. And look, it obviously failed dismally because it was fucking terrible, but... At least they tried. And this guy probably has a pretty nice house as well. Sure, yes. I should say, um, just in case no one has the faintest idea what the fuck no, probably not. about, <laughs> Limp Bizkit. Oh, they did I a cover. Their first, their first actual CD single hit was a... Um, was the cover of Faith by yep. George Michael. And you like always, it's, of... it's best to come out of the gates with a cover, I find, especially it, in a different I mean, genre. It worked for I'm Alien sure Ant Farm. make a pretty good case that it was the best song they ever did. Probably, if yeah. If only by, you know, the bar set by some of the rest of it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So anyway, um, yeah, probably moving to, to the actual song, um, it's a good song. I think it's very catchy. George Michael has... Interestingly, um, we talked about Wham, obviously, um, earlier on, um, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, when they went through a super neon, yes. very sort of kitschy sort of look for that. Well, that's the whole thing, yeah. But in this video clip, George Michael um, has gone back to the leather jacket, which was what Wham were wearing in their very, very, very first uh, music you videos. See, I did not know that. There yeah. you go. I thought this was a conscious attempt to sort of separate him from, yeah. from Wham. But it, but yeah. So back so Wham Rap, if you watch the video clip to Wham Rap, which everyone must do um, right now, pause this podcast <laughs> and go and check it out. But um, the song itself is sort of, yeah, you know, I guess, yeah, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go was their first sort of huge hit. And then obviously they went on to, yeah, obviously Last Christmas, etc. But I think in the UK, it was sort of like a top 10 sort of hit that yep. probably didn't sort of go internationally. But um, they, yeah, in the video clip, George Michael's wearing a black leather jacket, jeans. Looks very similar to what he's wearing in this uh, this sort of video clip, just sort of five, yeah. six years on. Um, and on the back, it's uh, the leather jacket says revenge in math. In, oh, in, okay. In really big words. I did not which notice is, that. Which is uh, fantastic, so obviously. And a... like last year, wasn't he, um, in 87, he was 
duetting wearing a leather jacket with a bedazzled back. <laughs> yeah. Who was he duetting with? Um, Aretha Franklin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously, and then, so clearly, so he's started off with a leather jacket, changed his mind, gone on neon, choose life for the Wham yep. era, gone back to the leather jacket. Then two years later after this, he's gone, nah, fuck the leather jacket. Then he set the leather jacket on fire in the video <laughs> for Freedom 90. So, you know, clearly he's a man who's comfortable trying to reinvent himself Absolutely. The only thing he didn't reinvent was steadfastly claiming to be heterosexual. No. This is this comes from the album which contains I Want Your Sex Part One, I Want yep. Your Sex Part Two, and yep. I Want Your Sex Part Three. Part Three, good. Which, which is, is the best part? <laughs> I can't remember. I didn't even know there was a part three. I'm excited no, to hear it. No, definitely, definitely. But um, yes, and his of course chin's double, you know. Be perfectly coiffed hair and so forth. I mean, he was a very handsome guy, but like, definitely, yeah. So he's in, so he's sort of you know his 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 overall appearance didn't change that much, but clearly he was trying to reinvent himself clothes wise. I think this is a this is an iconic video. I mean, it's sort of him with a leather jacket yeah. playing the guitar. Apparently, he very can't simple. play the guitar at all. So apparently, it's just him sort of holding <laughs> the guitar. So he he sort of wrote a lot of um, the songs in Wham and some of his solo stuff as well. But yeah, can't. So I'm not, I assume he probably wrote them Dude, on a piano, piano keyboard yeah. something. Like that. But yeah, apparently he can't really play the guitar very much, so it's just sort of him pretending to play the guitar or sort of dancing around. It's not around complicated, a bit. is it? There's no, no shredding. Just a dude like in, in, in uh, yeah, exactly. A guy with a guitar, black and white, just dancing. Yeah, it's good. But Holds it's a up. Look, yeah, it's quite an iconic bit of eighties. Any uh, any lyrical highlights for this? Um, oh, I was just going to say it'd be nice to see Fred Durst in a video solemnly burning his collection of baseball caps. You know, just <laughs> that to show could his, happen. Lyrics, his, his look could change. Um, not um, the lyrics aren't bad. They're written by George, which mm. is nice. Basically, he's just talking about turning down a hot potential partner because he's got to have faith that he'll find another one. Yep. I only just noticed it from reading these. I've never noticed it for, after I must have heard this song a hundred times in my life. But I just noticed that he cleverly avoids using any gender pronouns in this okay. whole song, despite the fact that all of his videos well into the 90s featured half-naked or fully-naked women yep. to confirm his ardent sexuality as a of the hetero variety. In the actual lyrics, he's doing the old Morrissey trick of, you know... But, um, yeah... Mm. No, it's not. There's not really a lot to report. It's, you know, it's got lines like, before this river becomes an ocean, which is a little bit weird. I'm not entirely sure what he means about that. Before you throw my heart back on the floor, you know, that's an evocative image. Absolutely. Mixing yeah. your metaphors a little bit there. But yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I was happy to find out that he actually wrote this himself. And as yep. you say, the music as well, despite not playing the guitar, because it's a catchy one. And it oh, was a good. huge hit, you know. Very good, I think. Uh, the thing is, when I look at all of the hits, and we've spoken about George before, and I'm sure we'll speak of him again, um, they're all generally pretty good songs. I think they've held up. I think they've yeah. held up a lot better than some of the other exactly. stuff. Exactly. They yeah. have the catchiness of a Stock Aiken Waterman song whilst being a bit more heartfelt <laughs> and a bit less awe-inspiringly shithouse in terms of how they're actually played and so forth. Absolutely. George has always been uh, quality, not quantity, which is not what I can say about yeah. the Stock Aiken Even something girls. like... Last Christmas I Gave You My Heart, which is a kind of cheat on the surface song. It seems like a cheesy Christmas song. Yep. It's 
good enough to have lasted. Like that's a 30 year old Christmas song that you still hear at Christmas time now. Like yep. just doing that on its own is a pretty good trick if you can manage that. Absolutely. And that's definitely one of the best Christmas songs. I think like there's a lot of shit Christmas songs. I think that's oh, one that sort of people go, that's still pretty good. So it holds <laughs> up. Um, George, Mike, we'll probably talk about this before, but um, I've got 34.6 mil on the Spotify. Wow. Um, I, I think I, I think I may have checked this. Um, I may have looked at this a month ago or something just in the January. We have spoken about this before yeah. that after Christmas, he gets a lot of do sort of like a lot of people listening oh, to this. Due to, a bump. Yeah, yeah, I think so. A bit of a bump, but that's still a lot regardless bump or not. Um, and 63 cents for this, which I think is a deal. Pick that up. Yeah. Yes. No, you're right. For George Michael and Aretha Franklin, he had uh, a lot less in the middle of the year. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but that makes sense. So just one week for that. Um, but yeah, all good. Yeah. So Tom, up next is George Harrison. I've got my mindset on you, which dare I say is another very, very catchy song. And look, you know, when you look at George Harrison's career, obviously he was in the Beatles, involved in recording, some would say, some of the best music of all time, you know, including such songs as... Yes, it is. Long, long, long. All I've got to do with you, without you, any time at all, you won't see me. Sexy Sadie, dig a pony, every little thing, the long and winding road come together. Good day, sunshine, rain, do you love me? Lady Madonna, back in the USSR, across the universe, I'm so tired, she's leaving home. Hey, bulldog, mother nature's son, let it be, I'll follow the sun and your bird can sing. Because your blues, think for yourself, yellow submarine, everything, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. From me to you, I'm a loser, you can't do that. Hey, Jude, Julia, baby, you're a rich man, oh, darling, nowhere, man, and I love her. I've got a feeling dear prudence girl with a little help from my friends sergeant pepper lonely heart club band something i want you she's so heavy i've just seen a face i'm only sleeping i'm down tax man two of us it won't be long helter skelter i need someone got to get you into my life in my life the night before the ballad of john and yoko things we said today you won't let me down no reply all my love and driving my car i feel fine get back for no one yesterday day tripper blackbird she said she said i should have known better paperback writer eight days a week i'm the walrus penny lane You've got to hide your love away. We can work it out. Strawberry fields forever. Can't buy me love. Here comes the sun. You're going to lose that child. If I fell there, here, there and everywhere. Happiness is a warm gun. Abbey Road. Eleanor Rigby. All you need is love. Please, please me. I want to hold your hand. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Tomorrow never knows. Ticket to write. I saw her standing there. Help. She loves you. Revolution. Norwegian water. Hard day's night. Hello, goodbye. Why my guitar gently weeps. A day in the life. But I feel, Tom, that this is the best thing he's ever done. <laughs> well, as a slight question... If you want to feel really good about your life, here's a question. I can edit half of that out. <laughs> what age was George Harrison when the Beatles broke up? Having knocked off those plus, you know, a whole bunch of others. Um, let's let's. I don't. I don't think the Beatles were together for that long in terms of like in terms of the the quantity of albums that they released. I don't think they were one of those like they, they were like young. U2 or something. I reckon he was probably only like. 40? He was 27. When they broke up? Mm -hmm. Really? So he'd done all of that <laughs> by the age of 27. Wow. Then he so went how, off and so, did lazy ass shit like this. So what was the... So the Beatles recording... So they only really recorded uh, music for like 10 years or something. Yeah, they weren't together for that long. They started out when they were... Like, you know, like rock bands still do and they a lot of them did back then. They started out when they were teenagers, you know, and yep. they just... Yeah, so... 
that in a decade. And yeah, Actually, in those yeah. days you did three albums a year, you know, and you know, absolutely toured, then recorded that and sold those as well. You covered other people's songs as well, like you know, they had a bunch of albums of that stuff. Definitely, I mean, and this is a cover it um, is of itself, so. It just goes to show that, you know, once you take John, Paul and Ringo out of the equation, there's not a lot left, is there? <laughs> the, the well is dry. The creative well is dry. Um, sorry, George, but there you go. I mean, look, you look at it, the years 88, um, you know, John's unfortunately passed away. Um, you know, so, so he's dead, um, you know. Paul McCartney's doing Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time. He's doing that. Um, mm. And sort of, he probably mm, did true. that a few years before this. And he's got wings. He's doing some other bullshit. Ringo's obviously, you know, doing the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine. Yep. So, you know, George has to do something. You know, the <laughs> others are all, you know, one's dead and the others are <laughs> occupied with other well, artistic endeavors. Some would say that are better than the Beatles. You know, true. Thomas the Tank, you know, it true. holds up to this day. wings. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, people still watch Thomas the Tank Engine. Do people still listen to the Beatles? I don't think they do. But, you know, so George has done this. That's fine. Um, yeah, but look, it is a catchy song. It is. I mean, it's, a, I guess, the original guy gets it's the credit better, yeah, for that. That's yeah, true. I, can't, I actually can't say that I've heard the original. I probably should have listened to that just out of curiosity, but yeah. It's like this, but worse, because the, 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 as oh, we know, okay. the cover's always better than the original. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Just imagine a shitter version of this. I so. do like some of George Harrison's songs. I really like While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is actually him, not. You know, yeah, that's what other people. But even then, that said, the one with Prince playing on it was better than his original. As you said, covers always better. Absolutely, than always, <laughs> always. That's it. Uh, this was parodied by Weird Al Yankovic as this song's just six words long. Yep. As a way of pointing out how lazy it is. But George didn't write this one, so I guess lyrics wise, you can't blame that on him. That said, it does repeat the title 32 times oh, over the course of the song. Yep. So maybe Al was onto something. Also, it's basically got one idea in the whole song. There's nothing really to point to otherwise. I mean, I. The one thing, I always thought it was pretty weird that he keeps reiterating how much money he's going to need. It's going to take to money, a whole lot of spending mm, money. He yep. says that multiple times. Yep. Unless he's actually planning some sort of international taken style kidnapping. That's going to take a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, I think Interpol and Liam Neeson should both probably be warned about uh, George Harrison. I've got my mind set on you and I'm planning to take you mm, to a different It's going to take country. a lot of time, a lot of money. I'm going to need a crew of guys wearing black turtlenecks. Absolutely, absolutely. names like Spin, For sure. Giorgio. I mean, this could be a kidnapping song. I'm not quite sure. I mean, no. Has, has the original songwriter ever come out and said, look, it's about, you know just falling in love with someone or it's actually about an international sort of kidnapping conspiracy. I don't know where they have. Sure. I, have you seen that video for this? I have. Have you? No, I don't think I've ever had. I, I used to listen to it a lot when I was a kid. My brother yep. had this on cassette and I remember liking it when I was 12 or whatever. But Yep. So the video clip, it's uh, George Harrison. He's sitting in a chair in his house. He's playing a guitar <laughs> and in the background, there's like a bookcase and a grandfather clock and they're all dancing. Oh, so he's okay. playing the song, the grandfather clock starts moving, the books start opening, shutting, dancing, there's stuff on the mantelpiece, moving around his hat on a hat stand, starts wow. dancing around. So I think what he's trying to say is that the, the effect of this song uh, is that doesn't matter if you're alive or sort of an inanimate object, you will dance to this. You will be mm. moved. Mm. This will move you. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it moved me a lot, um, obviously. So, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm going to give this. I, I don't, I, we don't score the socks. I don't really know why, <laughs> okay. why I've started. I'd out. say it's this worth <laughs> one week. Oh, I'd well, say it's worth one number week. One, week. And you also got to remember that he may have got to number one just off the back that people are like that guy used to be in the Beatles. I'm going to buy sure, that. So, sure. And he's probably even the least. I mean, you know, the Beatles eternally world famous but he's yep. probably the member of the Beatles that people thought about the least even while they were all still alive oh exactly you know, even Ringo people I think have more affection for him as a kind of cuddly character than George yeah, Harrison sort of, yeah exactly I mean yeah Paul and John obviously you know they wrote the, most of the Beatles men, songs yeah. they're super famous so you know everyone knows who those guys are Ringo on the drums a bit of a you know a bit, you know, a a bit of a larrikin like he was having the most fun yeah George George is probably sort of the one that people thought about the, the least you're absolutely right but you know obviously still um, you know had a lot of was involved in a lot of great songs um, I don't I don't know if I mentioned any before but um, <laughs> certainly there's a lot that he played guitar on so I will powerfully. say in case there's anyone under about 30 listening to this and you haven't seen either of the Beatles movies definitely mm. watch Hard Day's Night or Help because they are both very fun silly mm. films and they really are extremely charismatic and not too bad at acting oh absolutely like they're, yeah. they're really kind of products you can see how they were you know so huge not just as on stage but in interviews and you know oh yeah just they're quite funny as well I think yes, they didn't, didn't really. appear to take themselves they've too seriously they've got timing they can deliver jokes then in the whole the whole joke of Hard Day's Night and remember this is in this was written in the bloody this is 20 years before this song yep. came out the whole joke is that they play sort of um character versions of the public perception of them they play yep. like stylized versions and so John's a complete dick to everybody Paul's this kind of amiable sort of dumb guy who just lets people walk over him Ringo's always frustrated that everybody thinks that nobody that he doesn't do anything in the band yep. like they're already sort of it's kind of irony taking really. the piss out of themselves yeah. or ironically yes. sort of like and this is why they were still a going concern this isn't sort of like after the fact it's like you know it's sort of like people are people were invested in them as characters not just yeah absolutely as, absolutely. as people not just musicians yeah. for sure yeah so I mean um I think Peter Jackson's got a new documentary coming out this year about the Beatles where he re-edits oh, some yeah. old footage or something like that. I so, wouldn't mind checking Look, right. to, to be honest, I think, yeah, they, these guys, um, yeah, that's it. I mean, just when you sort of like people forget about the Beatles a bit, they'll do they'll bring something back and <laughs> so, they'll just be like, fucking hell, there you go. I was going to say, if there's one thing that people need more of, it's white guys <laughs> crapping on about the Beatles. I think I'm not even that invested in them. I'm no, either am I. Always... Anyway, all right, let's move on. Okay, what uh, One week up next for six weeks. Boom from first of Feb is Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. I've had the time of my life. Sorry, it's bracket I've had end bracket the time of my life. Putting the putting the brackets around. Six we, have we talked about this? Heck. Brackets in song titles is completely fucking pointless <laughs> and stupid. Just either just call it I've had the time of my life or just call <laughs> yes. it the time of my life. I mean for yes. fuck's sake. Brackets are the the old fashioned version of putting colons in movie and video game titles just yep. pick one of the thing pick the thing before the colon or the thing after the colon oh, exactly. if you can't choose between two titles you can't just give it two titles and stick a fucking colon in the middle yeah exactly it's ridiculous if it's called the time of my life call it that you know? um, sorry Tom I just forgot that George Harrison has 6.3 million Spotify listeners um, a lot less than I would have thought yeah, less I gather than the, George Michael the Beatles would have the Beatles yeah, would be as fucking a totality, a, yeah, like sure. a billion I don't know so um, and 71 cents you can get that for sorry about that people that people that are writing these down at home in there I know people have got like a spreadsheet they're putting yes. all this info in there 
Apologies, I don't want yeah. you to. Now, now, look, this song here, this is from Dirty Dancing, obviously. That's why it's six weeks. It's not because of the song. I mean, the song's not the worst song, song ever made. The song's okay. But, but um, like, it's, it was Dirty Dancing was a massive hit. Yeah. Like, it was huge. Absolutely. Um, it look, still is. It makes fuckloads every year. Yeah, money, for sure. You know. So a couple of couple of points I want to touch on, Tom. Um, of money. Bill, Bill Medley is one half of the Righteous Brothers. Ah, um, okay, gotcha. And they're fucking boring. I mean, I'm calling it now. Is he so. the guy who invented mashing a bunch of songs together in one long continuous uh, song? I don't think so. That might be well, Jive Bunny. He really, should, <laughs> but, uh, he really should have got his name patented before someone else ripped him off. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> For sure. But um, Jennifer Warnes, though, is related to Shane Warne, though, right? Jennifer Warnes is Shane Warnes' right. mum, I believe. That's I think good. so. The one who gave him those prescriptions. Yeah. Uh, the, the, performance yeah, drugs the weight loss pills yeah the diuretics it. yeah exactly um, so Shane Warne's mum the guy who invented sticking a bunch of songs together came done together this, yeah. and we know we already know um, JW as I'm calling it now which should catch on from um, remember Love Lifts Us Up Where We Belong uh, from earlier a couple of yeah. couple of weeks ago fly on the mountain so she the is the the queen of duets um, for films because that was that one was in An Officer and a Gentleman I believe uh, was it yes. or some other bullshit yeah. that I can't remember but um, look so Look, Dirty Dancing, um, it was a popular film, and this was the big song from it. How many people today are living in wheelchairs due to botched attempts at doing the Dirty Dancing lift, do you think, Tom? Well, I think, having just recently watched a thing about how they made, about the making of Dirty Dancing, yep. yeah, did you see that? I did, yeah. Yeah, that absolutely. was interesting. I, interestingly, the person who nearly ended up in a wheelchair was Patrick Spacey. Indeed, indeed. Like. <laughs> he seemed quite injured for the whole film. But yeah, I've, I've certainly been to... I've been to weddings. I've been to um, you know engagement parties. I've been to birthday parties. I've been to, to funerals. I've been to all kinds of events where after 40 to 45 standard drinks... Um, oh. Everybody, if this song comes on, people will be like, <laughs> do the, let's do, do the lift. lift. Yeah. Let's do the lift. And it's like... I weigh 40 kilos and you weigh 120 kilos. This isn't going to end well. Let's see what happens. Oh, yeah, now you've got a broken neck and you're in a wheelchair. But so I, I gather that I'm not alone in witnessing this. So if, you, if you're in a wheelchair because of a botch lift, please send us an email right in because I'd like to sort of gather that data up and, and find out more about it. But um, yeah, what else? So you, you saw, did you learn, did you gleam anything from I mean, the dirty dancing? Not only that, but then they redid that scene in that stupid crazy stupid love film which oh. will have encouraged another whole exactly. generation of people who think that they've got ab muscles to try and catch yeah, someone definitely. who looks like Amy Adams again for sure oh yeah what's the better film do you think is it Dirty Dancing or Dirty, <laughs> oh, Dirty Dancing, Dancing 2 by... Havana Nights oh. <laughs> or, or the... it's not Crazy Stupid Love or Tennis. no it's not I only watched this film very recently, like a year ago, mm. on the auspices of my friend Bridget, who's a big Swayze fan, and would often talk about queuing up with a hangover, some flash dance, some dirty dancing, yep. uh, maybe some point break, you know. Yeah, Roadhouse? Uh, maybe think? some Roadhouse, yeah. maybe some flash dance. Like, as we've mentioned before, flash dance, Footloose, and Dirty Dancing, the big three. Of the dance films, yeah. For the 80s. Before now, it's like lit, fucking... curtain-blowing <laughs> dance films. Now it's all drop your ass to the ground, to the streets, number seven, starring Channing Tatum's nephew or some uh, shit like that. But there's a lot of dance films these days, yes, correct. But this but is the golden era of dance films. I really enjoyed it, I have to admit. And yep. I ended up uh, texting her a bit drunkenly at 11pm saying, hang on. 
after all this time, are you telling me this romantic film that families also loved, the whole plot centres around two people trying to raise money for someone else's abortion? Yeah, I think so. And that was... This was in the eighties. I was genuinely kind of impressed, and I. But it, it is it, set in like the fifties or some shit. It is, which 60s. makes it even weirder to yep. you know. And then the fact that an abortion then happens in yep. the film, like they're successful, absolutely. You know, and also not only that, but the film was written by a lady who based this on you know events in her own life. Not yep. probably not that part, but you know things that happened to her and yeah. Going on those sort of before people, I think they even mentioned in the film before people went to Europe as a holiday it was like yes. let's just go for three weeks they go to, to those some... rich people summer camps it's, like in yeah. Mrs. Maisel when they all the Jews go to the is it the Hamptons or the, the up the, the wasps go to the Hamptons the Jews go to there's another one it's the upper class people would go off to these country club yeah. casino slash getaway holiday things and then they would have to be entertained for a month or two months at the time and one of the things they would do is dance yeah. lessons and stuff like that pre yeah. pre sort of yeah you know let's let's go overseas and do something and so like, let's go sure. somewhere else in america and we're going to spend our time here and yeah obviously this film is about that sort of as you mentioned the yep. person that wrote the script is sort of sort of you know drawing on some of her experiences mm. as a young person going to these sort of i guess you know sort of upper middle class people probably type yep. things and then yeah so coming to terms with having to raise money for an abortion was probably <laughs> outside the, the general yeah. what these people dealt with on a daily basis but um yeah this song um i don't know it's kind of boring it is a little bit boring they in uh in this uh show about the making of uh, Dirty Dancing, they said that they had trouble sourcing a lot of the music because a lot of it was based on particular old songs that were big favourites of the lady who wrote it and she insisted on a lot of them. Yep. So they got about half of them and then they swapped musical directors halfway through so then he was trying to source a bunch of other oh, stuff. Yeah. So then they ended up with this mix of yep. 50 stuff and 80 stuff and they said we had it all pinned down before the final dance scene, because they filmed it sort of chronologically, a lot of oh, it. Yeah. So the final dance scene was like the last thing they filmed, which is where Swayze nearly fucked his knee up trying to jump off the stage yeah. over and over again because he'd buggered his knee doing um, football. Oh, yeah. And and she said, we they were like, we have to have a song. We can't film this without a song with everyone just going to a metronome. Yeah. So they said the guy... At the last minute, their musical director just said, here, and he just gave them a cardboard box with a hundred cassettes in it. Okay. Just said, these are all potential candidates for the songs. And he said, we just sat there for a whole evening just going, click, play, no. you know, a minute, nah, chuck it. And he said, I swear to you, I know this is going to sound like I'm making up, I swear this was the last song okay. that we put in. And he said, I turned, to, I turned to the director and I said, look, <laughs> maybe I'm just gone mad out of you know desperation <laughs> but I swear this is the best one that we've listened to this whole time so either way either he went nuts or not but it was a hit so you know it must yeah. have clicked with people at some level absolutely look I think sorry when I said it was boring that's probably oh, not the right not thing to say it's not, it's not like it hasn't aged but I, I think what I meant was outside of the context of the film I think yeah. you listen to this song yes. and you exactly. and anyone that's seen the film can picture the sort of the, the end dance it's sequence. It's evocative because you're imagining exactly. that, yeah. But the song, out, without the film, I think, yeah, probably, yeah, I don't no. know whether it would hold up, but it certainly holds up because of the film. Um, any, 
Also, Patrick Swayze um, on the soundtrack um, sung the song "She's Like the Wind." Oh, that's right, and he wrote that himself. <laughs> yeah, what a fucking powerhouse! <laughs> this dude, I tell you what, he oh, acts in this film, and then a couple, I think, almost back to back with this, he stars in Roadhouse, where he just beats the shit out of a bunch of dudes. Man. And someone's like, "We need another song for the soundtrack," and he's like, "Oh, just give me five. Pens this shit, sings it. She's like the wind's the best song on that soundtrack. From '85 to about 1992, he must have had to walk around with like a portable barrier just yep. around him at all times, just to keep people yep. away from him. He was super good in this. Like, they did. They, they talked a bit about. He sort of had a like some. He he, he didn't want to get cast originally. Is that right? Because he said, "I don't, I don't want to be in." Yeah, it he didn't want it to be too girly. I think he wanted to have another macho role, yep. a roadhouse type of thing. Yep. And also, he'd filmed with Jennifer Grey before oh. in Red Dawn, and the the uh, subtextual thing was that they'd hooked up and he'd done dirty on her somehow, yep. and she hated him. Okay. But, and also, the other thing was, he had a real dance background. He had gone to, he'd been trained at this prestigious dance Wasn't academy. Wasn't his mother a dance it, teacher? His mother was a dance teacher and various other things, and she couldn't dance at all. Yep. So, So, in the film, you've got... Two people who are genuinely attracted to each other, but have a complicated romantic history, which gives them real kind of a love-hate relationship. And he's genuinely teaching her how to dance yep. because the film was filmed chronologically. So that's what you're watching on the screen. Yep. You're watching an old, older guy teach a younger girl who has mixed feelings about him how to dance. And it works just, you know, like you can't argue with the chemistry that they actually have. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. And that's what people are imagining when they listen to this song. They're thinking of those two being hot with each other. Oh, definitely. Well, that's what I am anyway. Maybe I'm just a perv. <laughs> the Swayze master. Can anyone remember the sitcom in the 90s where Jennifer Grey played herself as a washed-up actress? <laughs> oh, God. No, no one can. I can't, I can't tell you the name of it, Tom, but I remember, I'm going to say, late 90s, she just showed up in this sitcom and, mm. she, and like all the other people. It was like a sort of, we're all living in LA and we're just hanging out. And it's like, okay. hey, Jennifer. And, and she played sort of like an exaggerated, like, oh, Version I was in Dirty still. Dancing yeah. and then I haven't done anything since. Everyone went, ha, ha, ha. That was a joke. The show sucks shit. I'll try and find the name. And um, yeah, just because you can probably get the box set for like $80. Uh, and that's 80 like dollars. Like Ukrainian, Ukrainian pesos. dollars. Pesos. Yeah, I'm sure you can get it for real cheap if you want to watch her do what something do you, else outside of this. What do you think about the theory that she basically shot herself, her career in the foot, as it were, by getting a nose job, which made her basically look a lot more sort of generic Hollywood attractive where she had that very distinctive yep. kind of appearance. You know? Well, they, they do mention that in the sitcom, Tom. So, um, <laughs> from what I understand. But, uh, yeah, this I mean... This reminds me of that one where Kirstie Alley was really fat and the whole joke was that she was a fat, disgusting blob and, yeah. you know, you end up kind of... It's not even funny. You just kind of feel bad for everyone exactly. involved, especially her. Like, <laughs> for sure. She's been reduced to this. Well, that's an interesting sort of... Yeah, because this was a huge film, mm. like really, really big. And she, she, was, was in, she was the leading lady in a massive film. And then after this... She was in Ferris Bueller. Yep. Still looking pre, like this. Pre this. Pre yep. this. And then what else? She did another film, well, Red Dawn. Yeah. But she was, in, she was in one other one too. That's going to drive me nuts now. But yeah, you yeah. feel like this would have been the sort of... Um, the breakout. This is the breakout, and then you've just got the next five years at least of just leading lady in an array of different films, but it didn't really happen. So yeah, you could be right there. You could be right Oh, it's just... That. That's a theory that I have heard other people 
suggest that yep. maybe that's what happened. Oh, definitely. I mean, she was either excruciating to work with uh, or that, the nose job <laughs> thing, or I don't know, she just turned down a lot of roles, I don't know, <laughs> waiting for the right thing to it's come along. rough on women in Hollywood, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, that any, has any great to lyrics? do with this song. Um, this is another, like you were talking about before, this is another power duet. Now oh, that you mentioned that, yeah. I just each, every year there's at least three of these massive power duets. Like, and they definitely feature in films, yeah. Yeah, like most of them, the lyrics are pretty dull, though. Although, at least in this one, they aren't asking Biafran children dying of starvation whether they realise <laughs> Jesus was supposedly born 2,000 years ago in another country. <laughs> so that's plus. And also, this wasn't written by them. This was written by the traditional three other white guys you've never heard of. So <laughs> I guess we cannot really blame Bill and Jennifer for lines like, yes, I know what's on your mind when you say, stay with me tonight, mm. Mm, which is both boring and really not subtle. I mean, I don't know if I can decode that, but I think, you know, yep. probably about... I don't know, marshmallows or something. Definitely that, or finger slaying, one of the two, but we don't know. They so. could have even evoked finger slaying better. <laughs> they could have, yeah, okay. definitely. So, all right, moving on. That's yeah, that's good. Um, so, Dirty Bill Medley, 2.4 mil. He's probably got a lot more in the Righteous Brothers. He's probably, plus guys. he invented mashing Ma- salts and, together. Sorry, and I'm Shane really Warne's mum at 4.5 <laughs> mil. That's Jesus. good. Oh, she had the other hits. Oh, Love yeah. Lifts us up where we belong yet, and probably some other bullshit too. 33 cents. Oh, yeah. yeah, probably fair enough, I say. So that was six weeks. Up next for another six weeks, <laughs> whoa, from the 14th of March onwards, is Kylie Minogue with I Should Be So Lucky, Tom. I mean, the lyrics, the title suggests a number of jokes that you could make. Yeah. Have you listened to this recently? It's so fucking <laughs> bad. It it. Yeah, it's flipping terrible. I didn't... It's like two and a half minutes long and I didn't make it through that. It's just... Yeah. Absolutely. So I think... Oh, to, to, to really put into picture the, the, the Stock Aiken Waterman who obviously wrote and produced this as well all of the early Kylie songs um, are done by these guys uh, I found a quote um, from Pete Waterman um, who said I was at home one Friday afternoon when I got a call from Mike Stock one of the other guys at the trio at the office who asked if there was something I'd forgotten to tell him Mm. Oh, here we go. <laughs> a small Antipodean called Kylie Minogue, prompted Mike. I should have. I should do a British accent. I'm very bad at accents, <laughs> so I should have done it, but I haven't, Tom. So I won't try and do one now. Um, oh yes, I forgot. She's in town. Mike said, "No, she's in reception." Oh, I apologised for messing up and said, "We'll have to drop the whole project." Mike said, "Look, we can't. She's expecting." To do something with us. She should be so lucky, I said. Can I write some lyrics? And uh, that'll do. What? I should be so lucky. Ah. Mike and Pete began faxing lyrics back and forth. The song was finished quickly. (sighs) The triple echo, lucky, lucky, lucky at the end of the title was an improvised joke during recording, which they decided to keep. Um, Apparently, yeah, the song was written in 10 minutes and over the facts and then recorded so they penned it in 10 minutes mm. and recorded it two hours apparently they came yes. in and said we've written this song two hours later it was done and it fucking sounds like it was written in 10 minutes yes. recorded in two hours holy well, shit I bet you know when we were crapping on about Stockache and Waterman 10 minutes ago people were thinking that we were making up how little shit they gave about <laughs> writing songs when you hear um, 
bloody she should Rick she, Astley and yep. think, hmm, you know, even compared to Rick Astley, this is pretty terrible. Oh, exactly. When someone's saying, oh, she wants to work with us, she should be so lucky, and the guy's like, yeah, that's it. Just write, use that as lyrics, and then we'll just write something <laughs> and we'll record it in five minutes, and then you're done. So, mm-hmm. look, yeah, um, Kylie Minogue, look, if you're listening, which I know you are, um, <laughs> obviously you're an Australian icon. Um, we love you down here, down under, um, and across the world, of course. Um, but not for this. This is pretty bad. All of your shit in the 80s is terrible. Yeah. If I went to see you at Rod Laver Arena, um, assuming you'll perform there again one day, just stick with shit from the 90s onwards, please. <laughs> don't You don't need... Maybe, yeah. in a me- like maybe you could do a medley of like sort of your five shit sure. 80s number ones in about two minutes. Do a bit of medley, do that. But yeah, um, look, I think... Um, the Kylie Minogue at home collection of linens, candles, diffusers, <laughs> towels, and other homewares launched in 2008 is significantly better than this song. Well, she knows her market because, I mean, now she is 100% a camp, camp icon, you know. Yep. Her new shows are just all linens, bathware, and hot dudes in thongs giving each other baths under Absolutely. candles and diffusers from her homeware range <laughs> while she stands in the middle under a 30-foot headdress. Obviously, you know, she's had a lot of hits. She's significantly better artist, mm. bigger artist, I guess, than she can sort of... And she obviously did push back to the point where it's like, well, I'm not going to work with you guys anymore. Yeah. I'm going to do my own thing. And then obviously that's when you can sort of employ your own songwriters, I guess. Either you write your own songs or you can sort of try and work with people that sort of have a bit more of a similar <laughs> idea of what you want to do as opposed to just like, oh, yeah, bro, like... Oh, she should be so... Yeah, fuck yeah, I that's mean, it. That would be the thing, though. Imagine if somebody kept doing that to you and then it kept being a massive success. Oh, exactly. You'd start to think, well, this sounds like dog shit to me and I hate these clothes and I feel like I could write a better song on a xylophone but... in 20 minutes. <laughs> but they keep being big hits. Like, maybe they do know something. I don't yeah. know. Maybe when the reality fax is... machine songwriting techniques got something going for it. <laughs> when the reality is maybe I think people just sort of actually quite liked her as a performer and said yes. she is a good performer these yes. songs aren't great but you know she's pretty good and then obviously once she got yeah. to marry but I think one thing I will say about the latter Kylie work is while um, the songs are significantly better they're certainly less playful like these these are quite playful yes. and like oh That's look kind at how I mean. but it's, there's a sort a of naivety of about it. yeah there's a kind of light there's an ingenue quality to them, whereas later on she's more slickly produced. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. Um, this song, Tom, was also used in the 1989 mob comedy film Cookie. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, no I don't. I don't, know, I don't <laughs> know either. I just read this on Wikipedia, checked out the trailer of Cookie. It looks fucking awful. But yeah, basically, um, Cookie is a girl mm-hmm. and her dad's a mobster. Yeah. And she's getting into trouble herself and falling into some of the traps that her father did. But it's sort of like, okay. you know, can he really tell her what to do given that he's a gangster? <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to watch so the film and find out. Is this a kind out. of wacky family comedy or is this a hard-hitting it's a, It looks Bob like Boston a comedy. Style. looks like a sort of... It's a mob <laughs> comedy, sort of... Um, looks a bit bit wacky and uh, I Should Be So Lucky plays throughout the entire trailer. So, there you go. Oh, wow. So, anyway... Um, that song obviously broke her in America because everyone would have seen Cookie and just went, what's that song? So, um, anything else for this? Any no. lyrical highlights? Oh, God. Fuck stock ache and watering can suck ass. Listen to this shit, right? It's like, this is what 10 minutes gets you. Yep. In my imagination, there is no hesitation. We walk together hand in hand. I'm dreaming. You fell in love with me. 
like I'm in love with you, but dreaming's all I do. If only they'd come true. Uh-huh. Like, even with that monosyllabic bollocks, the fucking tenses, they couldn't even get the tenses to match up. <laughs> Change, changing, but, you know, but dreaming was all I did would be too complicated, you know, or if I, <laughs> dreaming's all I do, if only the dreams would come true. No, that's too hard. Fuck it. <laughs> I've got Rick Astley downstairs. He wants a new hit, you know. What have you got on the fax machine? Um, 22.7 mil. On the Spotify, oh, well, doesn't quite, surprise me at all. No. 43 cents, yeah, probably what it deserves. Um, so six weeks of that, pal. Then moving on for five weeks, uh, yes. 25th of April for five weeks is Billy Ocean, get out of my dreams, get into my car. <laughs> Holy shit. Now, this song is great. This is fantastic. <laughs> the lyrics are slightly rapey, I would suggest. Um, the title slightly the, Jesus I mean what would happen these days if you pull you know in your Toyota Corolla you're driving you know f- you know up around where you live sort of you, you're heading down High Street maybe you're heading into Northcote you pull up outside of a cafe someone's eating some Eggs Benedict or you know something like smashed avo on toast or whatever it is the kids are doing with a turmeric latte and you looked at them and said hey you get into my car <laughs> what the fuck would happen I think the police would be called Probably, yes. Yeah, but... Even if you said beep, beep, yeah, afterwards, <laughs> I reckon they still might call the police. Absolutely right. Now, this is um, this is a hit, obviously. Billy Ocean's got a lot of hits. Love this guy. This was um, produced yeah, by uh, Mutt Lang. If you don't know that guy, um, that's Shania Twain's ex-husband. Oh, of course, yes. But he all... Famous producer. <laughs> Absolutely. But he's also... Pro- this dude... He must have so many fucking swimming pools. Like, no <laughs> shit. He produced, um, so obviously this song, which is a hit, uh, Back in Black by ACDC, wow. which has sold over 30 million copies. Shania Twain's uh, Come On Over album, which sold 30 million copies. Wow. Def Leppard Hysteria, over 20 million copies. And Brian Adams' Waking Up the Neighbours, which um, <laughs> sold over 10 million copies. Slightly so this, this dude this dude has just um, produced so much shit, including this song. This is fantastic. Um, the lyrics, have you got some, some lyric? Because I've got a few lyrical highlights, but, but <laughs> sure. do you want to hit me with I yours just, first? And... I didn't have much for this one. It's fairly simple, like dodginess aside. I always found it a little bit odd that he says, get in the backseat, baby. Yeah. Like, you know... Is he offering limousine service, do you think? Or does he just specifically just want to bone in the backseat? I think he wants to bone in probably which case, in the backseat. But in that case, like, why bother getting the car? Yep. You know, what about getting the front seat, baby, then let's go to a place where they have beds, perhaps? Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, mean, I don't know if you've ever boned in a car, but that is a teenager's game. I'm yeah, look, you. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know what was happening with Billy. Maybe he was living out of his car. I don't really know. Like, I'm not sure whether, you know, this was a bit of a low point. This was a hit, obviously, and he's gone. Caribbean dreams with... gone to shit. Well, exactly. You know? Perhaps, you know, he didn't get the, the royalties he should have of some of his other hits. Maybe he is just sleeping in that car. So get out of my dreams, into my car. That's all he has to offer. Um, the going got tough. Yeah, the going, going got very tough. Down absolutely. the office. For sure. And look, I think you're right. This song's probably definitely about boning, um, as you can tell from some of the other lyrics, um, where he says, I'll be your non-stop lover. 
Um, get it while you can your non-stop miracle I'm your man now non-stop lover that I don't know like yeah we've talked back, about this it's no one wants to bone appeal. no one wants to bone for 12 hours <laughs> in the back of a fucking car no one wants to do that no, no one wants to be held tight all night either we've covered both of those yep. pretty extensively what's he referring to when he says quote touch my bumper end quote <laughs> in the lyrics I'm not sure you'd have to ask Grace Jones I believe she was a fan of I think erotic car metaphors. She yeah. was asking people to pull up to her bumper. Yeah. So perhaps they're both thinking about. I think it's just a cheeky sort of slap on the ass because <laughs> bumper refers. I mean, I assume it, it could be front or back bumper. He's either referring to his ass or just a cheeky <laughs> hand job. Pull Not up sure, to my but fupa. absolutely. Um, pull and to my gunt. That'd be <laughs> like a roadrunner coming after you. He also says as well. Mm, so that's a bit weird because. You know, the Roadrunner famously is not in a car. No, exactly. It's more sort of running. Yeah, definitely. But look, it's um, everything about the video clip to this, I think, oh, is fantastic. Oh, that's right. The does video... this have cartoon fish? <laughs> Fire does it. What, Tom? It's set in a car wash to begin with. Oh, um, hence the fish. Sta- so start set in a car wash. <laughs> Billy, for, he pulls up to the car wash. He's in a convertible with a top down, so I don't know what the fuck he's doing there. It's just like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. He pulls into the car. He's halfway in. The video's like two minutes in, then he... Like gets the, the roof closed. I'm just like, you fucked that up. So, you know, he's in a, it's a very nice Porsche as well. So when someone gets into his car, they're like, why the fuck are all the seats wet? And it's like, well, you know, I was in the car wash and didn't sort of put the, the you know, the top down fast enough. So the chick, she's wearing, sorry, the, the person who he asked to get into her car, she's wearing like a formal dress under her car wash employee uniform. So he shows up, she's in this, and then he's like, hey, you. And she's like, there's a bit of call and response oh, in this okay. at the start. Yeah, hey, you, right. who, me? Get into my car. So then she, she's obviously, fortunately, he said, you want to get into my car? And she's like, well, well, you know, I won't say right now exactly whether she does or doesn't, but she unzips her uniform at the oh, car wash yes. and she's wearing a formal dress underneath. Um, and yeah, this has some animation combined with live action. So, mm. so Billy, he gets into the car wash um, he winds up his windows in the car and then the car fills up with animated water, uh, sure. which is good, but you know, so obviously the car's <laughs> wet in a, the anim, it's animated to be wet. So I don't know when the person who does or doesn't get into the car, I don't want to reveal that yet, but whether they do, let's assume they do, then it, it's animated to be wet. What does that mean for for a live action a live action person gets into an animated wet car do they get wet or not I don't I know I think you need animated towels I, that's true I mean this is very complicated <laughs> stuff I don't really know what happens with that but so it fills up with water he's hanging out with various sea creatures um, a fish is in there then all of a sudden um, a hip hop duck with a boombox on his shoulder shows up. By that, I mean a, a rapping duck. The duck isn't rapping, but he shows up. He's wearing loose-fitting outfits. He sort of looks like a rapper, quote-unquote. He's got a boombox on his shoulder. Looney Tunes. Shows up. Um, and then the good thing about this is, and I've noticed this in a lot of video clips, is that car washes involve lots of dancing at them, which is probably why they're used in music videos with some frequency to begin with. Mm. You know, you show up to a car wash, there's always someone doing a flip off the hood and they're like doing a bit of a rap dance and like, that's ah, true. look at this. So that's probably why they like doing that, Or they're wearing a bikini and wiping themselves in the car. <laughs> Absolutely. They were the only two things car washes before in the 80s. Oh, for sure. I think people just washed their cars in their driveway and then they went to car washes to see breakdancing and yep. tits. 
Oh, damn straight. I mean, yeah, I, I think probably break dancing in tits first and then washing your car is like a distant third. It's like, what are you going to the car wash for, Steve? Oh, you want to see some cans? You're like, fair enough. And some capoeira. Absolutely. So I'm going to so, go home and clean <laughs> my car in my own driveway. Exactly, exactly. Um, look, if you haven't seen the video, she it's, does get into the car. Oh she eventually God. gets into that car. She gets out of his dreams and into the car, despite the fact that it's animated wet and, you know, it's just like... And also, seems... he's awake as well. Exactly. He's not dreaming. And then after she gets into the car, they go to a drive-in where they appear to be playing a film and the film is Billy Ocean performing. Uh. So he's up, he's <laughs> on the film screen performing... And then he's also simultaneously mm. watching himself perform from the. Cu- it's a very Lynchian twist, exactly. And then Billy does a dance with the animated duck that from previously, <laughs> who's now doing, does. who's do, now busting out a sax solo. And this is so is Billy Ocean doing a rap dance with this, the animated, <laughs> you know, duck playing a sax solo. And this is a good few years before Paula Abdul did the same thing with MC Scat Cat. So the video is ahead of its time. I'm thinking that these videos have got to have been inspired by Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh no doubt. Which must have been around about this time. No, um, this has got to be first. I reckon that this video clip inspired Who Framed Roger yes, Rabbit. Yes, I so. think you're right. Look, I don't really know for sure, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out in 88. So either this is an example of cultural resonance or they, you know... Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, came out in June. June 22, 1988. Wow. As we know, Tom, this is April. So I think Billy Ocean did this. Someone said, have you seen that fucking Billy Ocean (laughs) get out of my dreams, get into my car video clip? What if we combined... The emotion of animation with the, you know, the hard-hitting nature mm. of live action. Smash that together. Fantastic. Yeah. I really like that animated <laughs> duck doing a sax solo. Yes. Fantastic. Can we get him involved? No, we can't. He's already contracted. Let's just do a rabbit. But it is a great video. Um, a lot of it makes no sense. But I do love the fact that it does include <laughs> animated Live action, dancing, yes, and a car wash. By the standards of 1988, a lot of effort went into this. I will definitely say that. For it sure. was not cheap to do any of that stuff back no. then. And, you know, looking pretty good. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, look, just I'm interested. Um, if you're listening to this, pop out during the week. Go and ask someone to get out of your dreams into your car. See how you go. <laughs> Let me know whether you know you get put in jail or you know maybe have a dinner somewhere or whatever. So I'm interested to see whether in 2021 that still holds. But um, yeah, great song nevertheless. Mm. Still um, catchy. Absolutely, 3.4 mil for Billy Ocean. Um, yeah, good times and 33 cents. You can pick this up for. Go do it. Go watch the video clip though. I think um, you'll. Oh, I don't see anyone that couldn't enjoy the video clip to this. Do you reckon the horns in that are artificial or real? Oh, I mean, look, it was the 80s. I'd have to say they're artificial. <laughs> it's a good effect anyway. Absolutely. Right. No, I love that. What's up next? Um, so after five weeks of that, we have three weeks of Cheap Trick, The Flame. Mm, now this is would you call this a power ballad this is a this is a, the definition of power ballads I think this is powerful and it's certainly a ballad um, and it's one guy singing not two people no it's just the just not the about one Africa yep. <laughs> not at all just the one dude from cheap trick um, now cheap trick um, they were one of the first bands I believe that were quote 
big in Japan end quote. I've heard that, yes. So, um, how, how did that happen? Well, they were known as the American Beatles um, in the late <laughs> 70s for reasons that I don't quite know why. But I think what happened was people, you know, heard their music and they, I guess Big in Japan is where, a, a, obviously, an artist is disproportionately large in terms of their audience size in, in Japan country. compared to their own country. Sure. So at the time... Cheap Trick were massive in Japan. They were the American Beatles. They were treated like the Beatles when they showed up. Whereas in America, where they're from, people didn't seem to care so much at the time. And this is, I'm talking sort of uh, the late 70s. So they released an album called Live at Budokan. Uh, which was that's the original big in Japan album absolutely Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. Okay. So apparently they performed there at Budokan and um, they were getting like 10, 12,000 people a night wow. there. So, whereas in their home country, I think at the time, they were probably still sort of playing like very small yes. theatre shows in front of a few hundred people, perhaps. They probably didn't get that many big touring American bands in Japan in Absolutely. the late 70s. I yep. wouldn't have so, Live in Budokan was, was pretty big. Um, it featured the songs I Want You to Want Me um, oh, yeah. and Surrender. Um, oh, so, so two, two great songs, big hits. Look, I quite like Cheap Trick. Um, I quite like um, this song because it's a power ballad. You sing this at karaoke and <laughs> people will be punching holes in the wall. They'll be spin kicking off couches. They'll also be crying because it is emotional. It's powerful and emotional. So, um, And this song is off uh, the album Lap of Luxury, which is their 10th studio album in 11 years. Jeez. So, so prolific. They cranked out, cranked out 10, they 10 albums in a decade. in Australia. Absolutely. I remember the cover of Don't Be Cruel was big in Australia yeah, too. That was, to off this, that. that was off this album as well. Yeah, um, okay. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, all their earlier stuff, um, so including the songs I've just talked about, I Want You To Want Me, Surrender, um, they wrote those themselves. They, yep. they wrote all their own songs and then just before this album, their popularity was starting to wane yep. and the record company said, we need some outside songwriters to come in. So they didn't write this one themselves. So their only number one hit, they oh. had some other dudes to write this for them. I don't think they were super stoked on it. Apparently they were <laughs> like, you know, it's sort of a bit weird when your record company says the songs that you write yourself aren't really good enough. Yeah. You need a big hit. We're going to get it's some tough. other dudes. So you're sort of forced into doing this. But look, um, they had a hit. It was a number one hit. I think this song's great. Um, probably got them a bit more... You know, notoriety, people sort of know them a bit more. Um, people probably went to their shows, good stuff. Yeah. And they've actually, this song, all, uh, sorry, in 1988, the year this song came out, they also uh, featured a song on the Caddyshack 2 soundtrack. So <laughs> it was just great year for those guys. Well, this was kind of the, some would say, the sort of apex period, maybe not the apex, but close to the apex of... Um, Glam metal. Oh, yeah. As well. And they sort of always looked like they were sort of halfway between glam metal and sort of new wave. You know, there's a lot of, there's giant haircuts in this video, but they also had like quad neck guitars, you know, they had, you know, mirrored sunnies, they had, you know, check pants, (laughs) this like tight, you know, combination of that very 80s combination of, uh, you know, a white suit jacket with like, horizontal striped ski pants you know <laughs> absolutely sort of skin tight 
man tights, you know. But yeah, like that, it gave them a kind of character that was sort of. I mean, it looked like they were throwing everything at the wall, but that was the eighties for you. That's what everybody fucking looked like. You know? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. I mean, Rick Nielsen, the guitar player from this band, you're right. I believe he was playing a. Yeah, was he, I think it was a five neck guitar. <laughs> I think in, in this playing five neck guitar. That's one of the innovations they had for this album, which is like, radical. Fucking, we've got to get another neck, mate. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, five four's necks. just not cutting it anymore. Don't need four. We need five. Um, so apparently, in real life, he owns over. 400 guitars which is wow. pretty crazy um, and he also has over 100 custom novelty sweaters so he's effectively not only is are they the uh, American Beatles he's also um, the American Daryl Summers I think with those novelty sweaters but and that's sort of the interesting thing about Cheap Trick is that when you look at this period but certainly before in the late 70s and, and 80s sort of you've got so um Two of the guys, so Robin Zander, who's like the vocalist and guitar player, sort of had the long hair. I think he would wear a suit sometimes, yeah. but then he sort of wore different outfits. And you've got the bass player who sort of had long hair and looked like a rock guy. Yeah. Then Rick Nielsen with his novelty sweater. He had the hat with the visor always turned up like he was in suicidal tendencies. <laughs> and then the drummer yes, um, <laughs> just looks like a dude that works in the accounting department of an insurance company. <laughs> yes. Like just it's smoking just a bald guy with a moustache. <laughs> smoking yeah. cigs and it's just like, and I love that. I love no, when you just got. This is what I mean. You've got this variety, you know. Absolutely. You look at you look at Motley Crue or Poison from this. They all look the same. Yeah, it's just like four near identical guys. You know, if you swapped their hair around, you would struggle to tell who was who. You know? Yeah, and I think um, you know a lot of boy bands, a lot of the Korean boy bands and New Kids on the Block, etc. They stole their whole <laughs> shtick from Cheap Trick where well, it's like steal a bit harder because yeah. you know it's like there's the funny one there's the bad boy <laughs> there's the guy that works at an insurance company you know Cheap Trick invented this and then boy bands have run with it mm. oh look I, I like Marky Mark because he's the bad boy oh, where's like the bald guy a boy next That's exactly <laughs> exactly right so um and also, Rick Nielsen, the guitarist, he was on an episode of American Pickers. Have you seen you know what this is? Have you seen yeah, this? Yeah, it's one of those ones where people just buy other people's old crap. And exactly. Yeah. It's like uh, some dudes that just travel around America and they find <laughs> some guy that's got a sh- that's never never left his... Not only has he not left his state, he's never left his county. He's lived sure. there for like 80 years <laughs> and, he, and he's never thrown anything out. Yeah. So he's just got a fucking... A warehouse-sized shed on his property just filled <laughs> with crap. absolute fucking garbage. But they go in there and then someone's setting up like a an Americana bar somewhere. So they need some old like Route 66 signs and fucking yep. empty gas cans. And this dude's like, I've got all this shit pristine. So <laughs> that's what American Pickers is. But yeah, so they went to um, to visit Rick Nielsen once and I, I think went to his storage room or something and he sold him like said, oh, here's some old shit of mine. I don't want him. Or probably a novelty sweater or some garbage. So anyway, um, look, this is, this is fucking... Absolute apex of power ballads, I think. Um, pretty good. There's probably some it's other good ones bad. coming as well, but yeah, probably some more that have a bit more power. This is certainly probably more. I think if power ballads have a ratio of power to ballad, this is a bit more ballad than power. It is, yeah. Like I said, they were always a bit more rock than metal. Absolutely. They just kind of had. They were around at the same time. They had that sort of look that sort of fitted into that. Definitely. But they did. They they were capable of rocking out a bit, but they rocked a bit more than the Huey Lewis. 
Robert For Parmavine. Sure. Look, I think when you look at classic power poison. balance, yeah, definitely. Like, um, you know, every rose has its thorn. That's the sort of classic well, poison bloody, power balance. More than words by more than words I'd by take this over more than words. Well, I think that's if fun. this is more ballad than power, that's that's basically almost all ballad with yes. a very with a dash of power. Yeah, I think, it's really in. seeing a songwriter but with electric guitar. Definitely, and I think when people talk about power ballads, I think they should also include the. The power to ballad ratio, I think I'd like to see on a song. If someone's yes. like, it's a power ballad, and someone's like, well, it's 20 power, 80, you know, mm. ballad. With or, a, yeah, with a power duet, you should also have to include the ratio of famousness of the people oh, involved. Oh, absolutely, in it. for sure. Yeah, it's rarely 50 50 on the sort of power duet thing, and I think with a power ballad, it's rarely 50 50 yeah, as well. It is. So I'd like to see more 50 50 power ballads because, yeah, I reckon this is probably. 30 power 70 ballad maybe something like that what's the name of the power ballad on Attack of the Killer Bees by Anthrax which in four <laughs> ends with she got hit by a truck you heard that one that's <laughs> too I don't know the name it was but, uh, their it was their attempt at doing a power ballad I think because yeah. all the other metal bands of the era were doing them so yeah that's a that's a highlight in the power ballad absolutely look so um, yeah these guys they, they love a power ballad they also love a soundtrack I mentioned Caddyshack before um, they also covered Wild Thing um, really? which was featured on both Encino Man and Garfield the movie. <laughs> oh so two I've big, got the two... Encino Man soundtrack. Do you? Oh, there up. you go. Check that out. And they also featured on the Top Gun soundtrack with the song Mighty Wings, which is um, powerful. So. Doesn't surprise me <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 3.9 monthly listeners on the Spotify and 79 cents on Discogs. That's a pretty good deal, I think. Yeah. Any lyrical highlights for this one? Um. It's not bad. I mean, they, I know they didn't write this, but yeah, by the standards of the time, there's no irony whatsoever, but it con- communicates a simple thing pretty well. Um, the repeated refrain, after the fire, after the rain, I will be the flame, is a bit dodgy yep. from a practical sense. Surely fire is flame, and also probably the rain's going to put both of them out. Yep. But you get what he means, yep. you know. Uh, and I can't believe you're gone. You were the first, you'll be the last... That does slightly hint at the possibility of a murder-suicide. <laughs> or at least, just to be safe, I think we should contact Interpol and Liam Neeson again. Just, just on the it, off chance yeah. we've got a sort of Billy Ocean-type situation. I think if you said to someone here. you were the first and you'll be the last, I think they would be fucking freaked out as all shit. So <laughs> I completely agree. Okay, but other than that, no. It's it's not bad. You yeah. know, I, I quite like it. Definitely. So that's so three weeks for that. That was pretty good. Um, coming up next, twentieth of June for two weeks. Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. Now, mm. Tom, this was released in nineteen sixty-seven, and it took twenty-one years to get to number one. If it takes that long to get to number one, then you know it's total dog shit. Well, that theory would hold up in the case of the other old song we've had on here, yep. the Little Eva hit. Locomotion from 1962, which was also complete bollocks. Absolutely. So, yeah, I don't want to shit on old songs. (laughs) Actually, you know, I mean, come on. This is kind of, I don't know if you could say it was a classic, but yeah. Yeah, look, Tom, I've got a bone to pick with this one. Um, Look, 
the song itself, yeah, it's I think it's just from a different era. It's just super old. So maybe when I was a kid, I went. It's kind of boring because it's just uh, I just as yeah. a kid, I thought it's, it's it feels old. It is old, absolutely. Yes. But look, the reason this one reached number one um, in nineteen eighty eight, you might be saying, why is a nineteen sixty seven song? Why did it take so long? It's because it featured in the Robin Williams vehicle, Good Morning Vietnam. Ah, of course, yes. Now the problem I have, Tom, is that this song hit number one. Because of that film. That is the sole reason mm-hmm. that it was a number one song. Now, that film was set in 1965, but this song wasn't recorded until 1967. So it only featured in the film due to poor research on the part of the music <laughs> director of this film. Therefore, effectively, this song only reached number one due to an error on the part of someone responsible mm-hmm. for that film. It should never have been a number one song, and as such, I'm correcting the record by launching a campaign uh, to have it stricken from the record as a number one song. I'm going to start up one of those petition things. I'm going to yep. go to my local member of parliament, um, Bill Shorten. I'm going to say, Bill, <laughs> can you do one of those petitions you did for whatever the fuck you thing did about something else to do with the media or something? I can't remember what it was. Who knows? But yeah, look, we can't have number one songs going to number one because they were in a film, yet the time that the film was set, the song wasn't released yet. It makes no logical sense. Um, mm. I'm sorry, Louis, but you've scammed your way in there. <laughs> Maybe you paid the music director to get it. Just go, but this, the song didn't come out until two years after the film was set. Oh, don't worry about it. Just no one will fucking bother. <laughs> no podcast in 35 years later is going to look into this. So no. it's bullshit. I'm calling it now. Should never have been a number one. Something else should have been. By the same token, we would have to delete half of the songs, disqualify half the songs on the Wedding Singer soundtrack. Oh, no. Which were not <laughs> around at the time in the period in the 80s, which the uh-uh. film depicts. You know, And I know that Adam Sandler has a very you know, hard-nosed approach to accuracy and factual correctness. In oh, he absolutely does. So, um, yeah, I'm sure he would be the first to you know volunteer to do that. Definitely. Look, the... Uh... The, the song, so assuming that, um, you know, the song that was number two at the time yep. was actually Cheap Trick, The Flame. So, you know, they probably should have just got an extra week at number one. So there's yes. no one no one that really missed out. You know, I'm not going to say there's anyone that's like, well, they were, you know, they yeah. could have had a number one, but they didn't get one because of yeah. some bullshit that Louis Armstrong pulled. But... Nevertheless, if someone says to me, remember that number one song, What a Wonderful World, I will call them up, pull them up on it and say, well, yeah. did it deserve it? Like, not. Yeah. Clearly, like by the mid-80s, the baby boomer obsession with their own recent past was well underway. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and if for all the, uh, the, the Gen Y out there who now roll their eyes every time they have to hear about fucking Thundercats or He-Man or some eighties <laughs> bullshit that you don't care about. This is, you know, this, we had to go through all of this as well with this nonsense. Like, yeah, I mean, and not only that, but like, as you say, the the sixties with air quotes had already <laughs> become a general catch all sort of for a chronologically vague period yep. where all the music your dad liked took place and yeah, I mean, I used to love uh, Good Morning Vietnam when it came out, which is a bit weird because I was like fucking, I don't know, 12. Yeah. But yeah, even younger. Yeah. I mean, it was the same time as the Wonder Years and that yep. there was a Tour of Duty TV series, which is like a long TV miniseries set during the um, 
the Vietnam War and every parent in the world had at least one, usually several of those soundtracks, which were exactly like this just basic best of the 60s, roughly sort of compilation. And also a bunch of 10-year-olds shouldn't have been watching a show about Vietnam, really. Yeah. Even this movie's <laughs> depressing as fuck. People remember it because they remember the funny Robin Williams bits, but yeah. like it starts off kind of funny and gets grimmer and grimmer and grimmer. It doesn't end funny. <laughs> no. And this was like this was sort of apex Robin Williams. After this, you know, things started to go downhill a bit yeah. for him, like, you know, movie wise, like and critical appraisal. It was kind of sad, really. They got down to the point where he was starting to be considered just a big cheese ball. Yeah. And then he died. And then suddenly people were like, oh, you know, we loved him, really. Remember yeah. Good Morning Vietnam? Don't worry about Jack. Remember the good ones and his funny stand-up and stuff? You know. Remember Flubber? Sure do. <laughs> What's that line? You know, you live long enough, you live long enough, you become the enemy or something yeah. like that. Well, look, as you know, Tom, I do have a Patch Adams tattoo, so, <laughs> you know, don't speak too badly of him. <laughs> Uh, I used to love him, especially at this time. I thought oh, he was um, So look, you know, I shit on this song because um, of it being a fake number one, but you can't really doubt Louis Armstrong's contribution to jazz. Oh, That's no. obvious. Yeah. Um, so outside of this song, I think he did a lot of great things. And something else, he was also a pioneer of scatting, which a lot of people don't <laughs> oh, know, which shit. is one of my favourite genres. You know my love for Scatman John I and do. his seminal song, I'm the Scatman. Oh, so, what was another one of his hits that he had? Oh, I don't know, but he, it was, it, they were all good. There was a lot of scatting in there. Did a lot of scatting. That's good. Um, pretty good. Now, this is something I want to talk about in a later episode, so I won't deal with it directly now, but Scatman John has passed away. Uh, I see. But I think we need to look at something along the lines of being able to pass on your one-hit wonder when you die to someone else mm. to continue the legacy of that so that they can perform your <laughs> one-hit wonder now that you no longer can. <laughs> so it's a one-hit wonder succession type scenario. Um, it will become relevant in about 10 episodes time. So I'm just giving everyone <laughs> okay. a bit of a taster, a little bit of a taster of Scatman John passing on his hit to someone else and I think it's something that a lot of artists should put in their will yes. imagine George Michael well, George Michael's not a one hit wonder but imagine you know George Michael passed away and said I'm now dead but look I'd really really love Maroon 5 to continue performing <laughs> Faith um, that would be terrible but what if you know actual one hit wonders um, just went yeah look I'm, I can't perform this anymore like Cheap Trick I mean they're not mm. a one hit wonder but they've only got one number one song what if they said, oh, look, we leave in our will yep. someone else to perform the flame from now on? I'm a big fan of the uh, child of the yes. deceased <laughs> or disgraced or cancelled musician <laughs> essentially touring either with half of the original band yep. in with walking frames yep. or as essentially a a tribute act to their own parent. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. there's always something really authentic and awesome about that. Funny that, you, you mention that because the current drummer of Cheap Trick is the <laughs> son of the guitarist from Cheap Trick. So well, um, the, they've kept that going the, and a lot of other people it, do. This has so. happened with several other bands. Yes, I Definitely, believe. definitely, definitely. Yeah, I don't know what it, these drummers' kids are doing not being able to find work, you know. Maybe there's <laughs> no car washes nearby that they could get jobs at. Absolutely. Is Jason Bonham as good a drummer as John Bonham I don't know Led Zeppelin fans will find out in the live arena but uh, yeah so 13.6 mil doesn't surprise me yeah. that's a lot 
Um, but Louis Armstrong, yeah, obviously, oh, he's an outside of this song, yeah. a lot of action happening. 66 cents, that's a pretty sweet deal. Any lyrical highlights? Well, it's hard to hate this song too hard because, apart from anything else, it's very well-intentioned. It Absolutely. wasn't written by Louis Armstrong, but it was written, perhaps not authentically, for the, you know, the the period of Good Morning Vietnam, but it was written in a response to the Vietnam War, yep. supposedly. It was a desire to just put something positive out there in the world, you know. So the whole the whole point of it is to just create this kind of feeling of sort of, you know, a wealth and strong, if you will, of positivity, you know, and a, a positive outlook and worldview, you know. I mean, it, it's so well-intentioned that it, in fact, suggests that when friends shake hands and say, how do you do, they're really saying... I love you, yep. which is possibly taking optimism to a level that most normal people could only achieve using powerful opiates. But still, the general vibe is is nice, you know? It's like... Absolutely. And yeah, it, it's like the Bluebird on My Shoulder song without having the, you know, being featured in Song of the South attachment to it. You know, Definitely. it's really just about how, how, how wonderful life is. And he does it without using... The phrase zippity doo or I should be so lucky. You know, indeed. Which uses three times as many words as this to say absolutely fuck all. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, Tom, I should have asked you this at the very start, but what's your preferred version? Do you prefer the Louis Armstrong original or do you prefer um, Ricky May performing <laughs> this on Hey Hey It's Saturday with Daryl Summers accompanying him in blackface? <laughs> Remember when I said this had no racial attachment to no. it? <laughs> well, leave it to Australian, you know, evening television to provide that link. Look, as someone who's watched all 37 episodes of the Dale Summer Show, Tom, there is a lot of blackface in that, um, and surprisingly a lot, but it was the early 80s. But fast forward to the late 80s, mm-hmm. and I was surprised that Daryl himself applied the blackface to team up with Ricky May. Um, to do a cover of this, but I was even more surprised in the mid '90s when they busted it out. Again. Yeah, absolutely. Check and then in the YouTube early aughts when they busted it out again, for sure. Never let it be said that Daryl Summers was oh, ready a, to give a up on a bit just because you know the forces of political correctness were telling him <laughs> that it was not just in bad taste, but cripplingly unfunny and should never have been viewed in the first place just for his own sake of watching himself in a mirror doing it, you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, obviously it is offensive, but yeah, it is more the fact that it is just horribly unfunny to yeah. do this go yeah, for like comedic effect in, I'm going to put the blackface on it's much like, like his think, impression so. of Tattoo in Fantasy Island it's yep. not so much I mean you know Standing leaving aside hands, the yeah. issue of kneeling down and pretending to be a you know a little person but the overall just sucking at doing your very basic impersonation of two words and also doing it in like 2006 when the show mm. hasn't been on air for 25 Again. years so yeah it's good I love, <laughs> I love references that no one that's watching the show can actually In case them. anyone out there doesn't know which show we're talking about, it let me just say that Ben's dedication to this podcast has been demonstrated by his ability to watch 37 episodes of the Daryl Summer Show. If you don't know who that I would is, I struggle to watch 37 <laughs> minutes of an episode of the Daryl Summer Show. But Absolutely. I loved seeing the highlight packages. <laughs> All right, shall we move on? Yes. What are we up to? July. Yep. So, yes, up next is Kylie again with uh, Got To Be Certain. Now, this is somehow worse than I Should Be So Lucky. <laughs> it's almost impossible. It's the third stock I could warn them this year. It was only halfway through the year, and they get worse as they go along. 
How yeah, look, are they doing this? I assume that they wrote this in five minutes, and as we know, they require a full ten minutes to write a hit single, so maybe it probably explains why it's so bad. Maybe their fax machine was broken and they had to <laughs> they manually couldn't. sit in the same room as each other while they wrote a song. Mm. Now, the video clip itself is um, it's filmed around Melbourne, our, our current place of residence. I won't say our home city, because you know they didn't film it around the streets of Launceston. Um, she's walking along the Yarra, She's walking down there. Huh. She's on top of the um, the TNG building, which I think is now a KPMG building um, in Melbourne. She's at Luna Park, I think. She's on a um, sort of. Uh, I haven't seen this. No, yeah, since yeah. the eighties. Down there, she's uh, Luna Park. She she gets on a merry-go-round. Um, she's down on a pier in St Kilda, I think, scoring some heroin. So it's got it all. <laughs> it's got all the things that Melbourne people love about Melbourne. Sure. Um, Torrential so, yeah. rain. Absolutely. So this is um this one sort of sucks shit, um, which goes without saying for the Sc- Stockade and Waterman guys. Interestingly though, this was actually written for someone else, Tom. Oh. So this was written crushed. exactly. So this was written um by someone um of the name of Mandy Smith, who was actually one of the first artists signed to PWL, which okay. is the Stockade and Waterman record label effectively oh, okay. so um, one of the guys from that that was his record label they wrote the songs does it stand for piss weak lyrics <laughs> I think it does <laughs> piss weak lyrics indeed because they totally are um, so yeah so they wrote this for Mandy Smith um, this was meant to feature on her first and only album Mandy but for some reason so she recorded it they went oh no we're not going to do it they gave it to Kylie. Um, I listened to her version, and musically, it is identical. It's literally wow. the exact same music. The vocals don't really sound that different either, so it's sort of like weird that they sort of held it back for Kylie, yeah. and it was a hit for Kylie. So maybe if Mandy had have released it, bit of a sliding doors moment, maybe she could have been as famous as Kylie Minogue today. But interestingly, Mandy was actually um, famous before the release um, of her album, which contained no hit singles. Um, And that was because she was in a relationship with Rolling Stones bassist um, Bill Wyman when she attended the uh, BPI Awards with her older sister in 1984 um, when she was 13 years old and he was 47. Wow. So, good times. Um, As he wrote in his 1990 autobiography, (laughs) and I quote... The cancer for one of the Rolling, Rolling Stones. One of the Rolling Stones. Who was famous for this exact kind of behaviour. Um, quote, she took my breath away. She was a woman at 13. Well, mm. I don't know whether the law necessarily agrees with that. So, Not no. legally. Exactly. So the relationship only became public two and a half years later when she reached the age of 16. Um, and that resulted in a lot of controversy, as you can imagine. So, Although not enough controversy to change his career in any way or affect him. No, anymore. exactly. <laughs> so it's sort of, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, so obviously... You meet someone when they're 13, you're in a relationship with them, but you just keep it secret for three years until they're 16. Then it's, then it's totally street legal. Mm. So absolutely. So they're married in 1989 um, when she was 18 and he was 52. Um, and she developed some health issues and she blamed that on um, birth control pills she'd been taking since the age of 14. Um, and not long after the wedding... Um, she got down to 40 kilos. So not a great situation. Um, And then Wyman reportedly grew impatient with her health problems and um, they split up weeks after the wedding. So 
not so good uh, there. A real so, quality guy. Absolutely. So he's a piece of shit, obviously. But yes. people seem to turn a blind eye when you're a big star in a big band. This yeah. is this. We read about. We sort of see this shit almost every two <laughs> podcasts on this. Some weirdo dude um, hooking up with a teenager. Pretty crazy. The story um, weirdly takes another surprise turn in 1993 when Weinman's 30 year old son yeah. from his first marriage. Um, married her mother. Oh my God, <laughs> that's right. I heard about yep. this. So she was older than him. Yes, but, the son was but not that much older than. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, so it was pretty weird. Everything about this is completely. That's bizarre. much healthier though. Than oh, the other way around. Disgusting. Yeah. He was also the ugliest, creepiest guy in the Rolling Stones, which is fucking saying something. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but mate, I don't know. These I guess the point I'm trying to make is guys, they got away with murder. Oh, absolutely in, right. Literally, in some of their cases, look up Jerry Lee Lewis, who also <laughs> married his 14 year old cousin or some shit. Yeah, exactly. So that was weird as hell. So I feel for Mandy. I hope she's doing all right these days. Um, I think she would have got some decent settlement, hopefully, from the divorce, and hopefully she's able to put hope so, the whole thing behind she? her and sort of move on. Yeah. Because obviously. Um, yeah, that's that's. Well, look, it's just grooming, really, isn't it? When you're a 47 year old member of the Rolling oh, Stones and you hook up with a 13 year old, and then just to add insult ridiculous. to injury, you lose out. Got to be certain, Kyle. Exactly, that's the point. So I guess um, if Mandy had have released, got to be certain, and that was a hit then Kylie Minogue would have got married to one of the guys from the Rolling Stones. Is that how this works? <laughs> I think she would have been way too old for them. Yeah, no doubt. 20 or whatever she was during this period. Absolutely. So this song sucks shit. Um, anything you got to say about the lyrical? No, lyrically, <laughs> like their other stuff, it's just so boring that you can't even really find anything to mock. You can yep. write this entire song from the title in half an hour yep. and, you know, not get to oh. be, uh, one of Britain's leading songwriters, clearly. And the fact that it took three of them yep. to write these things definitely seriously let's move on rapidly yeah look I, I think Mandy actually dodged a bullet on that one yeah. I mean to release it so for it sure it might have been one piece of luck yeah you'd rather be a no hit wonder I think than a one hit wonder if this was the hit you'd just be like fucking hell so 36 cents for that it's probably too much I would not part with 36 much. cents for that so moving on to 18th July for four weeks John Farnham Age of Reason wow now this was a big hit this was his follow up to his previous massive comeback as we talked about before he's a guy who was living in his car we were joking about that before yep. but he actually was yep. not like Billy Ocean he no. was actually living in his car and if he wanted to pick girls up he had to get them to get into his car exactly. because he was living in it <laughs> and it's the same as if his mum came to visit as well yep. like, or his accountant step into my car <laughs> anyway this was his follow up to You're the Voice which is a massive career redefining comeback hit for yep. a younger talent and brought him back into the limelight and put him onto the pedestal of you know 80s Australian rock icon and this was his follow up to that song Age of Reason and yes, yeah, has a similar vibe. It does, yeah. Yes, they didn't want to mess with formula. I'm not. I'm thinking, but you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Not. I'm not. It's not written by the same person, though, is it? No, this is written by Todd Hunter from Dragon. No, Tom. it just feels very. I'm guessing the production was very similar. Absolutely, and they both share a sort of 
you know, vaguely, possibly Cold War-ish type theme, but yeah. Absolutely, for sure. So no, this is, um, yeah, as you said, written by Todd Hunter, Todd Hunter one of the guys from Dragon, um, who also wrote the theme song to Heartbreak High. Mm, so another, this guy classic. knows how to write a very good song, <laughs> is what I'm saying. So, um, look, I don't think this is a very powerful song. I don't think it's the sort of song you'd play at your wedding but it's the song you'd probably play at your wedding for your third marriage. Do you agree? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. I think if I was getting married for the third time, I would play this going down the aisle. What about the age of reason? Now, lyrically, what have you got? Have you got anything for me? Because I know that um, it seems to be a little bit of sort of, um, you know, what about the world around us? A little bit of like, is it, yeah. does it have an environmental message or a bit of a I just a general like you're the voice again it's more about sort of you know looking into the future can't we do better you mm-hmm. know it's an objectively strange song to be honest partly because it's about how we should be sort of trying to usher into a, in a new age of enlightenment yep which you know in 88 is a pretty weird topic for pop music since musicians stopped taking LSD every weekend <laughs> um, but yeah additionally it has no chorus. It's just four verses of different lengths. Oh, it's yeah. written by Todd Hunter, as you said, from Dragon, who had a lot of hits. I'm just kind of surprised they haven't been on here already. I think yep. maybe they were waning a little bit now, but they had some huge hits. They wrote things like April Sun in Cuba and so forth. Yep. It's written by Todd Hunter and Joanna Pitt. And their only other co-writing credit is Dreams of Ordinary Men oh, by yeah. Dragon, which was another big hit. And here's another fucking weird song. That also doesn't have any choruses. It's just five weird verses. It contains lyrics like, We had nightly public beatings, and we slept in private hells, and I felt no guilt or vengeance. We just couldn't help ourselves. Which is a lot less positive than Age of Reason. (laughs) But I'm just trying to get over the fact that clearly Johanna Piggott was having an unusual effect on Todd Hunter's musical yeah. style because his songs in Dragon are a lot more traditional in the vein of April Sun in Cuba, you know. Are you old the, enough? Um, oh, yes, another what about the age of consent type song. At least they're asking the question. Clearly some others That's are not. That's true. Um, <laughs> yes. But yeah, definitely. No, it's interesting. Um, the, the thing about this one as well, uh, Tom, is that I didn't, actually know until you just said that it doesn't have a chorus it's something that I didn't realise because it's just like what about the age he of reason but says it's, that's that just a couple the, of times but that's just, just the last line in each verse yeah, yeah or it's in the verse somewhere yeah, they wow. mention the age of reason it's a weird song construction crazy yeah that's yeah. that's that's something I absolutely did not notice because it has part. a real anthemic yeah. kind of feel to it but yeah definitely so it's an odd song it's for a sure one, but, um, but yeah sorry as I was going to say something else about this is the uh, the video clip is set in a garbage dump which is good at the very start, <laughs> with just John Farnham walking through a garbage dump with a bunch of kids running around. Might have um, been where his car was parked. Probably was. And then in the next scene, they're, um, I think, in an old warehouse and the kids sort of running there. So the, so the kids are, re, you know, they're a reoccurring theme throughout the video clip. So oh, okay. he's in various scenarios. I assume the rubbish dump's like, oh, you know, look at the, the trash and what the garbage... Yeah, exactly. And then the he's sort of... The kids the of the future, future. Yeah. so absolutely metaphor <laughs> alert. The kids running through the garbage dump. I've um, often certainly. said that the children are our future. You know, it's oh, an idea that absolutely. a lot of people are struggling to come around to, but for sure, I think they'll get there. They will definitely. Um, and I think at, so. The very last scene, they sort of end up in a warehouse. Yeah. Um, Victorian children's choir are there. They do a bit of. Oh, yeah. They do that yep. sort of thing. 
Um, and just in case you're worried about child labour laws, as I know that you may have been um, previously, we talked about... Um, as long as you... it's not the Mandy Smith kind, then I'm pretty fine. <laughs> exactly. So if you're thinking these kids aren't getting paid, don't worry about it. They each received a seven-inch single of this track. So that's what... Um, so that's good. So they all got paid, um, you know, something that's worth about... 50 cents these days on Discogs, Tom. So if they kept their copy, that's all right. Perhaps they can on-sell it. Maybe they got a signed copy. I'm not quite sure. So, yeah. Uh, 1.7 mil for Farnsey. I think we talked about that last week. Um, and this was also... Um, actually, I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, my knowledge of this, this part... I heard all of these secondhand at other people's houses, but I never actually owned this album. I never owned Whispering Jack. No. It was one of those ones you didn't need to own, like, you know, High Voltage by ACDC, because every single other person in Australia already had it. That's true. So, you know, or Working Class Man by Jimmy Barnes or something like that, but yeah. Exactly. So, look, I think um, this is... I'm I'm not going to say his last hit, but probably, like, he sort of... There was a bit of a... There was a, obviously he was living, living in the car, down in the dumps, and he had obviously a couple of hits on the, on the upswing, Ooh, You're the Voice, Take the Pressure Down This, and then I think oh, he sort take of... Take the Pressure Down, that was another yep, hit. Yep, that's true. And then I think he's sort of, after this, probably, I don't know, we maybe will have some other hits after this, but I think he's sort of, I reckon if you went to see uh, John Farnham these days, he'd probably pull a lot from this era. I think the yes. age of reason and sort of, the rad soundtrack and the rad soundtrack he would play all three and songs Savage on the rad soundtrack Nights. that's exactly right all what, that sort of stuff um, what was was it take the pressure down the one he did with the woman no that oh he did he did communication with uh, Danielle is that the one you're thinking <laughs> that's what I think yeah, that's, I'm that, not sure I, if that counts as a hit but I remember a lot of finger pointing I think that. that's one that we should raise Tom and, and you know I, really, I've not got anything in my notes about that. this but um, just off the top of my head communication uh, do you do the drug or does the drug do you <laughs> yes. and it was an anti-drug song and as far as I know um at least half the Australian population were on heroin before that song came out. That mm. single dropped, and now it's almost no one's on heroin. Yes. So I think it's sort of the proof's in the pudding. Um, <laughs> John Farnham's anti-drug song, um, very, very effective. I think possibly one of the reasons that he resonated so much at this time is that he just had this kind of, as his soundtrack work, which is easy to mock, demonstrates, but even when he did his own albums, Pat, you know, he wasn't writing all of the music himself, but... He really just seemed to lend himself towards that sort of aspirational, the world could be better kind Absolutely. of, you know, sort of, yeah. I mean, it must have just, it just clicked with the times, I'm thinking. Absolutely. And I don't know whether it's this video clip, um, but I know in one of his video clips, he was wearing an acid wash denim <laughs> trench coat, which I think resonates <laughs> to this day with a lot I of people. I can only hope that he was. All right. So Absolutely. who have we got next then? Up next um, for three weeks from the 15th of August is um, Fairground Attraction with Perfect. <sighs> wow. Now, how much sway do you think indicating to someone um, that you were, used to be in Fairground Attraction has in 2021? If you were at a restaurant and you walked <laughs> up and they said, do you have a reservation? You're like, I don't. And they're like, oh, look. We're full, and you said, "Oh, mate, I don't like bringing this up, but I used to be in fairground attraction." Is that going to get any sway? I would think it would carry about on the pop music scale about the approximate weight of being 
Someone who's in Simply Red, but not the main guy <laughs> with ginger. True. If you were in Fairground Attraction and you weren't actively wearing small round dark glasses and a beret and currently standing on a ferry boat, yep. then I think the odds of anyone giving even the tiniest shit about you yep. would be pretty slim. Look, these guys are definitely um, Although, sort of the definition of one-hit wonder, I'd at say. At a fairground... Yeah. Might carry slightly more weight. Perhaps they'd confuse you with the guy that they'd hired to entertain the kids. What? Yeah, what's fair? Oh, that's fair what I was going to say. Like what, what the fuck is up with that name? Is it saying that the band is like something you'd see at a fairground? A fairground attraction. Like a dog grooming show or some clowns, <laughs> summer nats or something like that? I mean... Maybe, I think, and, and if that's the case of hit the nail on the head, Tom, because this song's about as interesting as sort of putting yeah. the balls in a clown's mouth or <laughs> going on the zipper, I gather. So it's, I it's would rate of, them more highly than this. For sure, absolutely. Um, but not, what's that ride where one of the cages flew off into the river and someone died? <laughs> the turbo. If, does that ring any bells? <laughs> yes. God. <laughs> oh, I don't like to bring uh, it up, Tom, but apparently I think at some stage in the 90s, one of the turbo... Things flew I off and landed the in Sydney mm-hmm. Harbour or something, right. and I think someone did die. But they did keep it from the Launceston show for twelve months while they went and sort of tweaked the uh, <laughs> you know the whole situation. Got some engineers in, made sure it was sound for use, and then they said we're good to go, um, and no one has died subsequent. So that's okay. Um, so yeah, these guys, I think they're only together for a couple of years. So I think they formed in about. From what I saw, they like were a one hit one. 87 and then were done by 90. Had this one hit, that was it. The video clip's a bit wacky. They're on like a canal boat. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to before. That's about it. It's just them kind of dancing around in a canal yep. boat. It's exactly. not even a particularly nice day. They're just sort of trundling towards you. For sure. And this um, this song was actually subsequently used in an Asda commercial, so you know it's good. Um, <laughs> those people, if you don't know what Asda I is, it's a, it's a UK supermarket, okay. kind of like a food works. Okay. I think it's probably like about a fourth, you know, there's like, I think in the UK you've got like Sainsbury's and you've got Tesco, yep. you've got like Waitrose is like the fancy one. And then, yeah, Asda's like a few levels down from that. So kind of like a food works. And for those of people that don't know what a food works is, it's like a supermarket started by someone who'd never been into a supermarket before. Is that a fair assessment? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think you're right. You're you meaning someone who's designing a supermarket from first principles and just making the rules Absolutely. up as they go Someone on. said to you, a supermarket is a place where you can buy various food sources. They went, okay, <laughs> I don't need to see one. I know what's going to go on. And that's what a food works effectively is. You go in there and it's like, it has sort of all the trappings of a supermarket, but yeah, it sort of seems to be completely useless when you go in there. So good stuff. Well done, Fairground Attraction. I hope they got some Asda royalties. Oh that's okay. I'm, I'm trying to know how many people are following me. 220. Um, That's generous. It's, it's a lot, say. considering they've got this one hit. But I gather this song is like on one of those like best of the eighties like playlists on Spotify that yes. someone actually wants to listen to. Yellow, um, oh yeah. yeah, and then they put that on, and this comes on. You know, seven songs later, while they're you know taking a dump or something, or Almost doing the washing get, up yeah. or outside, and they're not actively putting it on, but they've got enough monthly listeners. That's my assessment, but I could be wrong. I would say if you started a Facebook group now called Fairground Attraction. Yep. You would get 
less than 220,000 people, and of that remaining number, more than 50% would be on there as fans of just attractions that you might see at a fairground, like putting balls in a clown's mouth and so forth. And they would be vaguely disappointed to discover that it was for devotees of this band. For sure. For sure. Um, Carnies would probably like this band. Possibly. Or maybe they hate them for mocking them. Maybe, maybe. Lyrically, I've just got to say, this is an easy one, because this has been annoying me since I was 10 years old. Not just the song, but halfway through the chorus, it repeatedly says, too many people take second best. Well, I won't take anything less. (laughs) Which grammatically cancels itself out. You're criticising other people for taking second best, which frankly is still pretty good if there's three and a half billion potential partners of the world but you're getting number two, ignoring that, and then saying that you won't take anything less than second best, which would also include second best. Well, it it doesn't imply it. It explicitly states that you would take second best. Yes. Because you won't take anything less, but you're taking second best. (laughs) Fucking bullshit. Like a Stock Aiken Waterman song, it could have been fixed by just changing like two words that would still allow it to rhyme, but, you know, that was too much effort, clearly. So, anyway, let's move on. Absolutely. So, up next, um, for five weeks, Robert Palmer, Simply Irresistible. Oh, a slightly more lasting song. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, we talked about Robert Palmer last week. He's a fucking hit factory. This is the... Obviously, this is... As you mentioned last week, Tom, sort of... Um, the video clip for Addicted to Love was sort of like a, a, a demo-ish version, yes. I guess. And then by Simply Resistible... the Evil Dead to this. Yeah, exactly. This is the Evil Dead too. They had... Five times as much money. Yeah, it took sort of um, yeah the same principles of the the models dancing and just stepped it up a notch. Very iconic video. Um, obviously, one of the most well known of the eighties. Um, yeah, look, this is just a great song. Yeah, it's still pretty bloody catchy. I have yep. to say, especially after you've had a few drinks, it definitely improves. People would have been dancing to a lot of these in nightclubs, as we oh, previously absolutely. discussed. Like dance music wasn't as much of a thing. As it is, yeah. But when you when you listen when you read American Psycho and he's talking about this era <laughs> and they're at the nightclubs in New York, they're not listening to, they're listening to In Excess and Simply Irresistible yeah. and Paula, you know, and Whitney and stuff like that, you know. Absolutely. So yeah, but yeah, and I mean for that purpose, it's great. I can't argue. with Oh, that. definitely. And I think last week you mentioned that um, obviously Robert Palmer had a lot of. Um, solo hits but also had some hits in his band uh, The Power Station oh, I forgot The Power Station who was it who else was in that um, two of the members of Duran Duran ah yes that's talked right. about that yes we did um, so look that's the thing about Robert Palmer obviously band success solo success um, the other members that used to be in The Power Station obviously just went look Duran Duran let's, let's get in that let's do Hungry Like the Wolf let's do Girls <laughs> on Film they're great songs in itself. Um, somebody, I was at a pub once, Tom, and somebody said, "Look, there's no one using the video jukebox. Um, <laughs> what you do video is jukeboxes. Oh, here's them. I'll put ten, the the barman said I'll put ten credits on there. You go put some songs on there, and then other people will see how good it is. It's so much and then fun. they'll go put some money into <laughs> sort of you know. And I said, "Yeah, fair enough, no problem." So I went and just put on. Um, Alice Cooper's Poison and Duran Duran um, Girls on Film five times each, um, <laughs> which is pretty good. Girls on Film, it's um, fantastic, really good. Um, I think there's some tits in there, so that's probably why I did it. Oh, it, was, it was a long time. It was two weeks ago when I was not. So, anyway, but yeah, good stuff. Um, Robert Palmer, apparently, 
himself wasn't that interested in the uh, excesses of rock and roll lifestyle. He sort of lived a, like a bit of a, not mm. as, you know, mm. in the video clip, he seems like it's sort of larger than life. Like, look at all my supermodel people. Sort but in real life, I think he's a little, wearing bit, a suit. little bit less than that. Um, but apparently he did smoke 60 cigarettes a day. Yeah, you could do that back then and still be considered a normal person, I think. <laughs> exactly. I mean, John John Farnham, we were discussed before, he was a, you know, like, he smoked at least a pack a day for decades. Yep. Like, And you could do that and be a creditable person whose voice was their instrument and still just be knocking back exactly. a couple of packets a day. For sure, for sure. And he won a Grammy for this and so he should have. Yeah, ah, uh, you know, it's surprised it wasn't in a movie that year or something. Oh, you know, yeah, I hope it I was. I mean, there's a film called Simply Irresistible, but I don't think it's got this song in it. Although I could be wrong. Yeah, probably check that. Absolutely. Um, did, were you going to mention there's some, the, you know, the noises in? The... I was going to ask what those noises <laughs> are. I have asked this before of other people. <laughs> And to the extent where I spent, you know, I don't know, maybe half an hour today trying to see if I could find someone on the internet who actually knows what they were, but I couldn't, you know, because there's a lot of theories. Mm. He doesn't, you can't see in the video. At first I thought maybe he like hits the mic stand or something in some way that you're, not, that you're supposed to see, you know, but yeah, it's, it's not that. Because you've got, so effectively, yeah, you've got the song, so you've got the, the Simply Irresistible, the guitar riff, um, and then you've just got him singing, but then just throughout the song, it's just, it sounds like a sword fight, sort of like yeah. clinking, like chinkle, like sort yes. of chink. Or someone drawing swords or like <laughs> exactly. waving some nunchucks around or something like that. It's yeah. It really adds to the song though, and I think that it does. Um, it sort of punctuates the um, the bridge kind yeah. of thing. I, I yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I used to find her, and then there's like, and the drums going dun 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 dun, and then there's like yeah. the sword bits People going ching, sword and then simply irresistible. The Ninja Turtles. In the without this, without that clinking metal sound, would the song have been a hit? <laughs> Is it I'm that? I'm thinking no. I don't think so. I think people listen to this and just go, oh, good song. I've heard it all before though. And then it's just like, what is that metallic sword sound? I'm going to go buy a copy and check it out. So, yeah. Lyrics? Um, yeah. Lyrically, I just, nothing too amazing. I, but I can't, I mean, despite what you're saying about him having no bad habits other than smoking two packs a day. <laughs> I can't help but notice that Robert has busted out another song that sounds an awful lot like he's just talking about how much he likes cocaine oh, again. absolutely. Like, which he would go on to do even more. Yep. He's done it in other songs. I mean, it was the 80s, but still. Uh, I'm breaking promises. She's breaking every law. She used to look good to me. Now I find her simply irresistible. That's not even getting him his next big hit, which starts with the line, Doctor, Doctor, give me the news. I've got a bad case of loving you. <laughs> which just sounds like he's staggered up to the reception desk in a rehab clinic and he's just waving half a gram at the girl on the front Absolutely, desk. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe he just had a very good imagination, but the fact that in the video clip it just looks like, you know, he's wearing a nice suit, you know, yeah. It's, he's, yeah. I don't know. I think this song's actually less subtle than Eric Clapton's Cocaine. That's I think I think that you know like is is cocaine a metaphor in that like what's this about? At Whereas le- in this it's just like at least know. in cocaine you're not hundred percent sure whether he's into whether he how he, he you sense he might have ambivalent feelings yeah, about cocaine. With these these three massive hits for Palmer, he's basically saying this is the best thing in the entire world, and I'm powerless to resist it. I mean, um, a girlfriend yeah. obviously not. You know, this 
powerful also, narcotic that everyone around me is using. And while I, yeah, I mean, obviously I don't want to cast any aspersions on Robert Palmer, um, but fortunately you can't defame the dead. So I will say that <laughs> he does look like someone that um, may have been hanging around the Florida Keys, just sort of getting a shipment in from sort 100%. Of, he sort of has yes. that vibe. Um, he does. Yeah. He's got a touch of the car salesman about him. Like, not, yep. not the bad kind. No. The sort of the more high-end kind, but the guy who looks like he might well be able to sort you out. You know, yep. round the back. He's selling used Porsches, um, maybe that Billy Ocean mm. one that he had um, earlier <laughs> on in Get Out of My Dreams, Get Out of My Car. Sort of like, yeah, he's trying to sell you that. The seats are a bit damp, but don't worry about it, bro. It's okay. It's sweet. And um, there's something extra in the glove box if you need it. Just let me know. So yeah, I mean, hats off to the man, though. What he's really done here, you know, fairly early. I mean, you got to remember MTV's only been around for six, seven years at this yep. point, And already he's figured out the formula like it, the, for the strides, you know, yeah. it, that videos were making during this time, you just you get more money for the next video. You yeah. have three times as many women wearing half as much clothing. It's a formula that's still in very high demand today. Absolutely. Uh, these days, what you would definitely not do is have all of the women in the video be a fair bit taller than he is. <laughs> that's true. But at least in this one, his suit fits. In the first, in um, <laughs> in addicted to love, it does look like he's wearing something quite large yes. purchased from the Fox Mulder <laughs> X-Files Season 1 collection and just the belt kind of loosely holding it together around the waist. Like a teenager working at Harvey Norman who's borrowed his dad's yes. suit for day one and it's yes. just like, that's... Uh, First year you, retail. Bro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You grow into it. <laughs> yeah, but um, look... Good stuff. Oh no, Palmer. it's it's great. You it's know. everything about this is good. On this on this list, it might get played the most still possibly, oh, no or it'd definitely be in the sec- number two spot, maybe. Yep. So I think we mentioned last week Robert Palmer's um, Spotify two point eight mil um, and forty five cents for this. I think that's pretty sweet. Um, yeah, I don't think that number reflects just how often his hits still get played on eighties. Yep. Nostalgia, you know. Maybe when we all die out, the Gen X, Gen Y will be like, what the fuck is this yep. guy in a suit doing? I don't want to buy any cocaine. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's move on before I... All right. Next up for three weeks, um, 10th of October for three weeks, is U2 Desire. Okay. Now, imagine calling yourself Bono. <laughs> it's as close to Boner as you can get. What's your nickname, Bono? People are like, what's your... Boner? You call yourself Boner? It's what? also dangerously close to a number of commercial products such as Bonox and Bonio, yeah, which exactly. are like various yeah. food products and dog food products, you know, related, yeah. which were around at the time of him doing that. Too. Absolutely. Well, I think that's one of the weirdest things about you two for me is that you've got Bono and then you've got The Edge, and then the other two dudes just have their regular fucking names. I mean, you're either all in or nobody They could in. have at least pulled a Gary Gary Beers and exactly. double your first name. It's know. just like, I'm Bono, I'm The Edge, and then it's just like, oh, I'm, Steve. I'm Steve and Shane. I mean, fuck that. Like, I... A few years ago, Tom, when I was living in Japan, I went to what... I went to, like, a mini festival type thing, and... Um, uh, it was all kinds of different bands of various genres, but the headlining band was like uh, like a Spanish like grindcore <laughs> band okay, or something. Sure. <laughs> and uh, they got up on stage. The vocalist has no shirt on and mm. he's covered in fake blood. 
just like sure. fake blood just dripping off him. <laughs> the drummer couldn't make it, so they had a drum machine, which is a good sign. Great. Just when he's like, yeah, sorry, the drummer couldn't couldn't get couldn't get the visa, so he's got a drum machine. The guitarist was wearing like a surgeon's outfit, um, with covered in blood yeah. as well. So you've got That's guitarist with surgeon's outfit covered in blood. Vocalist just head to toe blood, and then the bass players just wearing shorts and a t shirt, and it's just like. <laughs> Did they lose your Someone luggage? Here is What's going not on? Pulling their weight, and and I just looked at that and just went, "You're either all in or no one's in." <laughs> I remember watching, yeah, all the videos for the first, or you know, the, the release videos for the first Wolf Mother album. Mm. Guy at the front's got an afro. Um, the keyboardist's wearing flares. Yep. He's got you know wizard hair and stuff like that. And the guitarist just wearing like a bowl neck shirt and some jeans. Yeah, just. After the third time you see that in a video, you're like, that guy's not going to last me. No, album number two. Sure enough, album number two. Yeah, no. Musical differences. He's out. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Really, I, you couldn't get one pair of fucking bell bottoms to go world touring? No, yeah. man, I'm not wearing that. Shit. For sure. <laughs> I think you need to be not on into the that same 70s shit. Well, your band's called Wolf Mother. What do you think was going to happen when the lead singer showed up with an afro? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And said, hey... Listen to this riff, and you're like, that sounds identical to something off Led Zeppelin 2. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, yeah, so, I don't know. So that's something I always found weird about you two, that it's like they don't they didn't all have stage names, just two of the four had stage I names. would hope that Bono was something, you know, like an old nickname, and The Edge was not meant to be taken seriously. If The Edge is meant to be taken seriously, then he can get fucked, frankly. But I guess that's the thing as well. When they were starting off, it might have been a bit of like light-hearted humour but then when they yes, got really big it's like well that's stuck. my name now I'm sort of stuck with it and it's like fair enough but yeah, yeah. so if but it's anyway. like if you started referring yourself as you know the dopest rhymer on the east coast that's true and then that became listed in album tracks yeah know. okay I'll give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> I'm just saying I'll give them the benefit of the <laughs> doubt on these suck. weird names I'll give them that but um is putting a U2 album on your iPod without asking for it a human rights violation well People give them shit for that. What's the Hague said about that? Right now, in 88, it would have gone over a treat. If they had mailed out, like, by hand with the edge <laughs> licking the envelopes, six billion cassettes yep. of the new album, they were fucking huge here. They could seemingly do no wrong at this time. I remember this. They were just... They somehow pulled off that rare trick, and for the next album or so... Yep. Of being enormously successful in the mainstream, like number one yep. songs and albums, but they still also managed to, for a while, maintain this kind of rootsy Irish blues rock credibility. You know, like it's of a course. tough trick to do that. And then when you throw in Bono's charity shit as well, yep. like it couldn't last forever. But very few bands manage it very long at all. Like In Excess pulled it off for about one and a half albums, and then you know. Oh, look, I, I think... Jokey, jokey. Um, jokes aside, these guys um, have released a lot of hits over the years. Um, certainly, uh, a lot, the 80s material is, is probably the stuff that, um, yeah, holds up the best, I think. Yeah. Um, considering... It was a lot more original then, too. Absolutely. Um, but obviously, look, you know, I probably shouldn't give Bono too much shit because he obviously is, you know, a creative genius. Um <laughs> Not too long after this, on the Zoo TV tour, he unleashed some alter egos and uh, performers that's on when stage. That started. Yep. Um, and he performed this song, um, Desire, as Mirrorball Man, where he'd wear a shiny suit that looked like a disco ball. 
So that's pretty good. Um, sure. And his other characters are also the fly, mm. in which he'd wear some wraparound sunglasses so he'd look a bit <laughs> like a fly. Not much like a fly, but... No. Nah. Sure. And McFisto, who wore a, another sort of shiny suit with platform boots. Could have gone more more interesting, but really it was just an allusion to the devil. Mm. So he's a genius. Absolutely, (laughs) been a much more interesting costume. Giant fist, kilt, that sort of thing. Bagpipes, all of those things, exactly. But definitely a genius. Um, I've got a character called the Fly. I'm going to wear some some sunglasses, so that's pretty good. (laughs) Um, Look, one thing I will point out with this song is the Edge said he was influenced by the song 1969 by the Stooges. I saw that. Yes, Um, influenced is one way to put it. I'd say just directly ripped the riff off is another. It oh, is really? Exactly. I've never heard the it. Fucking no. same. So, um, yeah. And by exactly the same, I'd say um, I think um, there's probably a note changed in there, but it sounds <laughs> I have, very, very similar. I've heard a couple of other guitarists of some prominence, prominence give shit to the edge. Mm. Uh, partly for things like that and partly for his one technique which seems to be using a is it reverb pedal yeah and then just playing some pretty basic shit that sounds just a lot more epic because it's got this one trick on it yeah look um, it's safe to say he uses a lot of effects pedals to sort of get that to get his sound I think so Um, but look as long as it sounds good to people I guess does it really matter whether you're writing extremely complicated music or no. if you're just doing something, sorry, complicated, I guess, whether you're writing something that um, is difficult to play, I mean, or is it just sort of, well, it's simple to play, but you're using some effects that people like or whatever, whatever the case may be. I mean, They've obviously got a lot of hits. But um, yeah, when I listened, well, I, I know that Stooges song rel- like pretty well. And then when I listened <laughs> to this Desire song, I went, oh, shit. And then I put them on side by side and went, yeah, that's pretty much just taking that riff and sort of... Um, so at least he acknowledged it by saying true. that he was... Inf- he, he, he did yeah. acknowledge it and said he was influenced by that. But um, yeah, when something's um, got 90% of the same notes, um, sort of in the same... <laughs> sort of time sequence yeah. I guess I don't know also this shows how far this shows how long ago this was happening because no musician in their right mind nowadays would ever say that because that's the first thing that would be brought up when in a the estate of the Stooges <laughs> who don't include just their surviving children who are yep. living off the money their parents made start looking around for shit to sue that's the first thing that they bring up in the court case yeah absolutely yeah, people not... lose millions of dollars because of that stuff now so yeah don't know whether any of the Stooges um, Iggy Pop or any of the other guys went well sue you guys but yeah certainly um, these days yeah I think people are looking for a sort of that sounds like that I'm going to sue yeah. you and then yeah I think they might have been a bit of a victim of their own success a little bit although obviously they were in love with it as this song would suggest lyrically as well but like you know as you say their zoo tv after this they became so massive that their zoo tv tour took on this spectacular kind of thing like you had him dressed in a bloody mirrored outfit ringing up the pope live on stage and things like that yeah and it's dangerous when it happens yes because then each successive concert has to beat the previous one. Yep. And before you know it, you're driving onto stage in a 50-foot motorised lemon, then the door jams and you die of carbon monoxide poisoning while the roadies <laughs> feverishly hammer at a giant fibreglass citrus fruit, which is now your coffin. Mm. You know, I mean, that sort of shit is where Spinal Tap got their ideas from. But that's pretty close to what actually happened in the tour after that, where they were just completely sort of detached from any sort of yep. original 
pub rock sound. I mean, the pub rock aspect of them is what makes them stand out on this list of songs. The fact that their instruments are real effects yeah, pedals aside course, yeah. and they're playing kind of, you know, something that feels like it has a kind of vibrancy to it, you know. Absolutely. I mean, for sure, these guys definitely sort of started out more of like a post-punk type thing, I guess. And then, yeah, with a bit of that sort of pub yeah. rock sort of vibe as well. And then, look, they've gone from that to be huge stars, celebrities. Stadium Stadium rockers, tours, yeah. exactly. So, look, and, um, yeah, that's not easy to do. And, look, this song, actually, to be honest, I think it's pretty good. It's all right. It's not terrible. I remember no. liking it. My first girlfriend when I was 18, she was still listening to this, uh, this album and Josh, is this Joshua Tree or is this? Um, I think Dang this it. might be the one. This I think that. Joshua Tree was next. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah. Whichever one that had this on it, she was a big fan of that. And I listened to this a lot and I remember liking them, you know, I remember yep. thinking that was, especially at the age of like, you know, 18, you know, it was, yeah. Absolutely. And his lyrics, like, you know, she's the candle burning in my room. Yeah, I'm like the needle, the needle and the spoon, over the counter with a shotgun. Pretty soon, everybody's got one. I'm in a fever when I'm beside her desire. Now, according to Bono, like, this song is about the lure of fame and success, you know, to the emerging rock star, which kind of goes to show that it was a subject that he was thinking about already. Yeah. Even previous to what we were just talking about with, you know, that crazy level of a success that they would later, you know, even greater, you know, they would achieve even more in terms of that sort of stuff. And it's definitely not about heroin. <laughs> On the other hand, Robert Palmer claims he's not singing about cocaine, so who knows? Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. I don't want to buy into stereotypes, but I suspect maybe Bono is too boring to be a heroin addict. Oh, probably. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> I think at the very least we should contact Interpol and Liam Neeson just to make sure that, you know. Absolutely right. All right, up next, uh, Tom. Um, sorry, 17.3 million for you for you two, which Jeez, doesn't surprise me. It's a lot. Thought, yeah, yeah, I thought it might have been more than that, but, you know, maybe, you know, these numbers fluctuate. I did check this um, probably a month ago, so it might be more now. And this is a dollar three. Cracks the dollar mark. Yeah. A lot do. They do not. So that's that's good. I All mean, right. they must have been the biggest band in the world at one point. Oh, no doubt. I mean, let's remind ourselves that Van Halen were once the biggest band <laughs> in the world. But still, like, you know, they must have dipped off a bit, you know. Anyway. Yeah, I think, though, if they played now in Australia, they'd still be playing at, like, you know, Rod Labour or something and selling out, oh, you know, 15,000 sure. seat stadiums. But so, they yeah. don't get the coverage they used to. I remember there was a, maybe it was like 10 years ago, they did like the 360 tour and they had some huge elaborate mm. live virtual reality stage thing and just nobody really cared, you know. Yeah. I'm sure it was full. Yeah, But absolutely. like in terms of media coverage, you know, like, yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Sorry. So no, that's fine. Moving right. on, moving on next um, for seventh of November for seven weeks, seven powerful weeks is Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy. Um, now this featured on the cocktail soundtrack. Yep, which is huge. Um, but it also featured in Hotel Transylvania Three: Summer Vacation, <laughs> which is another huge that's film. Good to know. Very very good. Um, now look, this this is interesting. This song um, because it was actually one of the first, and I think only um, a cappella songs that reached number one. Yeah, they so can't, I can't think of many others. Can you? Yeah, 
So it's basically just um, it's there's there's a whistle there's whistling in it. He's doing the whistling. He's yeah. obviously singing. There's a few like clicks and like, but yeah, apparently, so he's making all the noises yep. himself with his own body. I think he did a full album of just that oh, acapella okay. <laughs> album, and this was the big hit yep. um, off that. And I think it subsequently inspired a Bjork album as well. So I don't know what that did, but she did also did one that was just using voice. Sure. So, um, so yeah, this one's pretty big. For the time, I think it was like a, a cultural phenomenon. It kind of was, yeah. I mean, it really was. People talked about it weirdly, you know. Absolutely, yeah. These days, a cultural phenomenon is a video of a cat in a box on the top of a fridge, just That's... going, "Wow, look at that!" <laughs> on on like TikTok or something. This oh, is there's true. a cat in a box. But you know, back then you actually had to do something of importance that wasn't going to be irrelevant in three minutes. But anyway, so remember that there was an urban legend in the early '90s that. Uh, Bobby McFerrin committed suicide. I do remember you. Yes, I do remember this. In fact, yeah. it was it was weird. It was one of those things. Don't worry, be happy. And then, like, sort of in the mid nineties, people, you know, that guy committed suicide, didn't you? And mm. it's like, really? Oh, wow. But the internet didn't exist, so people <laughs> couldn't go and verify that. So I just assumed that for the yes. longest time he'd committed suicide. And then it wasn't until maybe a <laughs> decade later that I realised that no, he was still alive and well. <laughs> And the fact that he'd committed suicide was a complete <laughs> urban legend, just a fabrication of facts. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, no, it's one of those stories that people love because it sounds like it should be true. Yep. Even though they have no proof of it or any, anything to back that up. It's yeah. the kind of thing people's dads used to tell you at parties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> possibly for their own amusement or possibly because they actually did believe it. It was hard to say when you were um, 11 years old. Yeah, definitely. Look... Interestingly, I mean, this the lyrics to this song, you know, sort of don't obviously don't worry, be happy, says that mm-hmm. over and over again. Some of the things in there, like, you know, like, don't worry if your rent is late and they might have to litigate. That don't worry, be taught happy. taught me the word litigate. Yeah. I was going to say that. That's That's a very I remember having song. to find out what that meant because I couldn't, I had to ask someone what the word was and yeah. then they told me and I was like, oh. And I had to go and look it up in the dictionary. Yeah. That's what we did before the internet. We physically looked it <laughs> up looked in the dictionary. If someone was going to sue you... Um, for not that, paying rent. For not paying rent or just for rent, suing you in any context. And someone said, look, don't worry, be happy. Is that sound legal advice? <laughs> just sort of go, don't worry, be happy. It's not. Will that get you out? No. Don't think no, so. I don't think so. He so, doesn't claim to be a lawyer. No, he doesn't. I'll yeah. give him that. That's, that's actually true, yeah. So I think the song itself, um, yeah, look, it's it's uplifting, but the advice much, is not the best. How much do you reckon the success of this is due to being on Cocktail soundtrack? Oh, a lot. Because that was that was six weeks as well for yep. the, um, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Yeah. And oh. I mean, Cocktail was weirdly huge. Dirty Dancing, I get the appeal of. Yep. I can totally understand the appeal. It still has a lot of appeal now. It's still a fun movie. But have you watched Cocktail recently? I've not seen Cocktail recently. Dear God. Have you watched Cocktail it's recently? Just, I've watched about two-thirds of it a couple yep. of times. I watched two-thirds of it when I was drunk, and then I forgot that I'd watched it and then tried watching it again later. And I was like, oh, God, that's right. It's yep. like, I think it might be second place to risky business or in a tie possibly <laughs> for most... I sort of archetypically 80s film yep. all time. I don't just mean like big hair and stuff like that. I mean the message it's contained in it. Whereas Risky Business is like the, the ultimate 
the ultimate state of mankind is free market capitalism, and yep. which is prostitution, which should be happily embraced because of how well it symbolises that and that everybody moves to a city at the end because that's all we want to do. And yep. driving a Porsche is the best state of mind. A Porsche <laughs> and a hot blonde. Whereas this is about two dickheads <laughs> who want to open a cocktail bar. It's called Cocktails and Dreams. That's the name. <laughs> this is They've been fantasising about this for years and this is the best name they Cocktails could come with. Cocktails and Dreams. Just imagine, if you will, just imagine for a second how fucking annoying it would be to get a, try and get a drink in a bar like that. Two twats dancing around to Boy McFerrin taking 37 minutes to make one old-fashioned while people stand around in pools of their own piss and they're all smoking cigarettes because yep. it's 1988 and you don't even have to go outside to do it. Well, I don't really... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the thing that I remember most about the film is that they're sort of... First of all, they're, they're, in, they're in the big city, aren't they? They're working at the, the coolest bar that exists or they're working at a bar. They get some the sort job, yeah. It's a, it's a young... It's an older, wise guy who yep. takes a young, a young, handsome Tom Cruise over his arm <laughs> and teaches him not just the ways of how to make old fashions in 37 minutes, no. man, but how to understand a mystery of women dare I say that general. dare I say that how to make the cocktail is, is secondary to the rest of uh, just yeah. learning about life life lessons dare I say that at least 60% of the advice that um, <laughs> he gives the older hand gives uh, Tom Cruise would now qualify as felony sexual assault <laughs> and that they would both 100% be in prison absolutely like, you know, for acting out any of the stuff that they think. Definitely. But um, that's the thing, though. You're absolutely right. You show up to this bar, it's like, yeah, bro, can I just get a beer? And there's, like, fucking someone just flipping a cocktail shaker behind his head for, like, 45 minutes. Yeah. You're going, bro, I don't, I don't, that beer's going to be bullshit because you're putting a <laughs> yeah. cocktail shaker. Just flipping it around the back of your head, dancing around. It's like, fuck that. And then he drops on the ground and has to start again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. and But they wouldn't drop it on the ground because these are professionals. And then, obviously, they move... They, they sort of what happened? Why did they leave the big city for like um, the the beach? What happened there was did did can you remember was was I Brian Brown chased he out had of to town or escape rape charges? So he left, <laughs> okay. and then he, Tom uh, Cruise followed him also on the lamb. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great film. Check it out. It's um, also it's... very, very long yeah. and slow and tedious. Yeah, even this... Bobby McFerrin cannot liven it up. This hasn't been remade yet, though. So, Tom, there's someone, there's some fucking dickhead in Hollywood just going, what if we remade Cocktail? This is the kind of film that, honest to God, you think someone like, you know, your Danny McBride, your Will Ferrell could remake just as a piss take, or as like a 21 Jump Street type of thing about two (laughs) incredibly annoying sexist pieces of shit who think that taking a very long time to make drinks will help them figure out, you know, the world and get That's probably better than... That's the other thing. Let's not forget, these guys are trying to make their fortune by being the world's slowest bartenders. Absolutely. Like, they're not trying to do this to earn money to, you know, it's just... (laughs) The, the speed at which they make these drinks, you'd need 45 staff members in there to make it viable, and then it's not viable because you've got to pay them all too much, so it's not going to work. Look, yeah, the film itself is pretty weird. Um, look, the video clip is just basically nothing to do... The film doesn't feature in the video clip. No. Um, it's just, um, you, you know... You can't blame Bobby McFerrin no. for cocktails. It's just I'm Bobby just McFerrin saying. hanging out, 
with his old mate, Robin Williams, in the video <laughs> clip, just dancing around. Robin Williams is wearing that. a wacky shirt. It's all like, ah, oh, look at this. It's so much fun. So Robin Williams is featured twice in this list today, so that's pretty good. He's got a moustache. He He's keeping it real. Himself, but I guess he should have taken Bobby's advice. Absolutely, and just don't worry and be happy. So, that was a bit tasteless. Poor old Robin. Oh. Yeah, poor. That's, that's okay, Tom. It's been said now. It can't be unsaid. Um, we'll always have Flubber and Patch Adams. And so, Jack. And Jack, yeah, absolutely. And Jumanji. Was he in that? Yes. Yeah, probably was. So we'll always have Jumanji. Um, so, yeah, look, song itself, yeah, I don't know. I don't think you'd hear this in an IJ much these days. I don't know. That's my no. test, is it? But it's sort of it like, kind of is, is it a novelty song a little bit-ish? A catchy whistling song. Yeah, I guess you could call it a novelty song, although yep. his lyrical content is genuine. Like, he's not. Yep. it's not a wacky joke no. song. He's, you know, he's, he's giving you genuine advice. But Absolutely. Yeah. Interestingly, Bobby McFerrin, um, prior to this song, had actually won a fuckload of Grammys for really? his work as a jazz musician. Ah. Yeah. So he's predominantly predominantly known as a jazz musician. So he's released something like 20 albums as a jazz musician. And then um, he did a couple of acapella albums um, just to sort of break it up a bit. And this was just a surprise hit. Wasn't intended to be any sort of hit. This sort of broke out. probably got genuine musical talent which does not show up super strongly in this song other than it being a nice whistleable. So you might say he's a one-hit wonder, but in the sense I don't think he ever intended to have a hit. It was just sort of like this got picked up and sort of taken. And then after he did that, he just, I think, went back to sort of doing more jazz-based stuff. Um, So, yeah, this was, um, I think, wasn't the first... Uh, jazz musician to have a surprise hit on MTV the uh, in America like this was a hit in the US as well mm-hmm. um, Herbie Hancock you may remember Rocket oh yes so that was a bit of a surprise hit as well except unfortunately <laughs> back then MTV weren't playing black artists so yeah they uh, he couldn't d- didn't get a lot of it shown so <laughs> but that was that com- seems completely bizarre that um when MTV first launched, they just went, yeah, white artists only. So There's a famous interview, bizarre. if you've never seen it, where they were interviewing uh, David Bowie in the early days and he just said, why don't you play any black music? Oh, really? And then they kind of, the guy, the DJ sort of prevaricates and says, oh, you know, we, we don't feel like... You know, rap music's, you know, kind of our speed. We were, you know, like, and you can see him just trying to come up with some a good answer for this. And Taylor Bowie's just looking at him like, you cockhead. Yeah, exactly. Like, what are you talking about? Completely bizarre. <laughs> and then fast forward like three years and it's just sort of yes, like... Yes, Run DMC and Aerosmith exactly. is the biggest song they Exactly. Play. So it seems completely insane now. But um, 1.7 mil for Bobby McFerrin. Oh, yeah. Um, and 31 cents on the Spotify. Anything you can say about this lyric-wise? Oh, or? No. Like I said, taught me the word litigate. That's about the best <laughs> thing I can think about. So Absolutely. It's not offensive. It's no. just kind of, you know. So that was, for, that was seven weeks. Um, that wow. was a lot of that. Um, so, yeah, last one of the year. Moving on. It's the Beach Boys... Kokomo, another seven weeks. Wow. Now, this one also featured on the Cocktail soundtrack. <laughs> Why does it not surprise me? It's the Beach Boys song that Beach Boys fans hate because it does not include Brian Wilson. No. He was off being off his face on a bit of the old Robert Palmer. Yep. And uh, But they did appear on Full House to sing this one, so <laughs> I guess he missed out on that. How rude, I think you would say, to describe Brian Wilson of this era. Absolutely. I mean, he was quite rude, you know, yeah, to look, give the Olsen twins credit. 
For sure. I look, I believe John Stamos from Full House played drums in the video to this. <laughs> not so sort of, um, one bit. But it's sort of... Uh, the video is basically a short episode of Full House. Yeah, with a bit of cocktail action mm-hmm. maybe thrown in for good measure. But, um, Tom, it's interesting. Um, Aruba, Jamaica. Oh, I want to take you to Bermuda, Bahama. Come on, pretty mama. Kilago, Montego, baby, why don't we go? Jamaica off the Florida Keys. Um... There's a place called Kokomo, obviously, et cetera, et cetera. Um, does that sound like a place you'd like to go to get away from it all? <laughs> I think Kokomo might possibly be made up. Yes, it's a fake place. It's not a real <laughs> place. But um, assuming that you went there, you're going to get down there. There's going to be a fucking midget flipping a cocktail shake around his head for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. as we've talked about. Brian Brown's going to be John telling you how to sexually assault yeah. people. John Stamos from Full House on the fucking drums and then a steel drum band and they all suck shit and it's just going to be like, I just want to go and get a beer and hang out with mates. I don't want to go to fucking Kokomo. And as you said, Tom, Kokomo is not a real place in the sense that in the song, they sort of talk about Kokomo off the Florida Keys as like a sort of a place to get away from it all, sort of like, you know, Aruba, Jamaica. So you're sort of talking Mm -hmm. the Caribbean. This is where you want to go. Not real, but funnily enough, um, it is actually a place. It's just that it's a city in Indiana in the US, um, which couldn't be further from a fucking beach if, you know, you could think of any place in the US. It's just like, okay, imagine you went to a travel agency and said, oh... I've seen, I've heard that, so I'd really like to go to Kokomo so I can get away from it all. That Tra- must travel have agents just like, but you don't. It's just like, no, no, no. Like I've heard the song, I want to go. That's like, happened. Wait, 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 this wait, wait. situation has occurred. Exactly. So you can't. The travel agents like you don't understand. You're just like, no, no, no. I want to go there. You end up in fucking Kokomo in Indiana. Um, sure, they've got the old silk stocking historic district and the home of the canned tomato juice is is um, Kokomo. So it's but not worth it. fuck's sake. Also, interestingly, Tom, um, according uh, to some stuff I read that um, on the 4th of July, 1923, Kokomo achieved national notoriety when it, um, notoriety, sorry, when it hosted the largest ever Ku Klux Klan gathering in history. Wow. Um, an estimated 200,000 Klan members showed up uh, in a park in Kokomo. Um, so there you go. And apparently... During that time, approximately half of all Kokomo residents were members of the Ku Klux Klan um, during the 20s and 30s. So, yeah, let's get away from it all down in Kokomo. Imagine showing up there and just being like, fucking hell. Now, I know that was 100 years ago, but look, Tom, I've always lived by the sort of saying that where there's smoke, there's fire. So I know that, um, look, we may have moved on, but there's ancestors of those people that are still living in Kokomo. So fucking hell. I don't really know what to say about this. Is it something that the Beach Boys were aware of? Was is this song a dog whistle to people Still to racists everywhere just going I mean, Kokomo to get away from it all and everyone's going, I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> which I guess raises the question, are the Beach Boys a white power band? Well, I would certainly say that given that the national the <laughs> the indigenous populations of every single place that he mentions are people of colour and that every single person in this video is white. 
then I would say that perhaps there is some kind of dog whistle going perhaps on. Perhaps they are. Look, I'm cancelling the Beach Boys now. Clearly a white power band. Um, look, mm. don't don't Except buy their Brian records. Except Brian Wilson. Except Brian he Wilson was, wasn't, was not involved in this at all. Exactly. Brian Wilson wasn't involved in this. Exactly. Wilson wasn't involved the in this. old Robert and, yeah... Definitely. Look, um, I know that you can't on Discogs. They won't allow you. They, they on the marketplace. You can't trade certain records. They ban certain things oh, really? for sale. Yep. Um, so ban. So white power bands. Um, for example, Screwdriver yep. is a, a popular UK. Brit, well, popular. They're a white power band from the UK yep. that I think gained some notoriety at some stage in the past. All of their stuff's banned. You can't trade these things on Discogs. I think there's a Discogs policy that's effectively like you can't yep. buy and sell these certain things. So if you're listening to Discogs, ban the Beach Boys. Mm. Kokomo at the very least, if not their whole discography. Because goodness me. <laughs> Definitely. Kokomo, Kokomo, a place to get away from it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, if you're a member of the KKK, maybe, perhaps. I don't know. Seems pretty sketchy to me. I don't know. So, but... Um, interestingly though, I do like a band that destroys their own legacy. (laughs) You do too? Um, because Mike Love, one of the members of the Beach Boys, Mm -hmm. um, he went on to release a single called Santa's Going to Kokomo, which is a Christmas themed, uh, update of this song, which is every bit as fucking terrible as it sounds. I guess this kind of demonstrates where the actual talent in the Beach Boys (laughs) were. Absolutely right. So look, that's um, fucking hell. This was the best he could do without Brian Wilson, and then he followed it up with a Christmas theme, a Christmas themed, um, a a Christmas themed version of a White Power song. So it's just terrible all around. I remember watching this at the age of ten, watching them on Full House, and just thinking, I don't know if these guys were ever cool, but clearly (laughs) this is now officially just dad music. Like, even at that age, you could just tell, like, this was no long cool, you know. If Bob Saget's grooving in front of you, <laughs> then you were officially <laughs> you not know cool that It's all over. Absolutely. What's well, interesting, yeah, because you say that, Tom, before Kokomo, their last US number one hit was um, Good Vibrations, mm, which uh, came, 15 years came out in 1966, so 22 years 22 prior to this. 22 years earlier, so, yes. And even, and by this stage, this was sort of just like a... Oh, yeah, let's get the Beach Boys to come and do some bullshit. This sounds nothing like their other no, stuff, obviously. No, it's, it's boomer nostalgia. Oh, That's absolutely. What, yeah. For sure, yep, definitely. And, so. and as are the lyrics. They're just a ly- list of places that rich, middle-class white people go on holiday and yep. the home of the fucking clan. Oh, exactly, exactly right. Which, so. you know, maybe they also do that. Yeah, so look, um, cancel the Beach Boys. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. <laughs> this is sketchy as all hell. Um, but yeah... 16.8 million listeners on Spotify. That'll soon be down to zero, I guess, once people realise how sketchy they are. Yep. 79 cents on Discogs if you want one by it now because they'll stop selling this next week once they you know, find out that mm. who these dudes really are and what they're talking about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the end of the year. Um, so, Tom, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that's mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, sorry, two weeks there of Kokomo, but it does kick over. Into the next year. What a great so start for 89. But as I, yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned at the start of uh, this episode, um, a little bit of disparity between the Kent music oh, yes. charts. Yeah. Um, and how did they differ? Well, there was one more. So we've just uh, looked at all the songs in the Aria charts from yeah. 1988, but the Kent music charts did have one additional song in November. 
Yeah. Um, so they, I think we had Bobby McFerrin in for seven weeks. Yeah. They had Bobby McFerrin for six weeks and the additional uh, Phil Collins groovy kind of love for one week. <laughs> so that was the difference there. Something um, I feel better disposed towards the RHR. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Phil Collins can do no wrong apart from this song, which I think is pretty terrible. But <laughs> this was a number one hit in the UK and the US. Um, and his this version, it's a, a cover, obviously. Yep. And this was used in the film Buster. Oh, okay. So, so this, this is, is another film one. Film yep. song of the year, okay. Yeah. Um, where Collins, Fourth, he plays the title role in Buster. Mm, I've not seen Buster, I know nothing it's about, about the Buster. the Great but... Train Robbery, the famous oh. British train robbery. Fantastic. Wherein some of them actually got away with money and escaped. Ronnie Biggs was yeah. the last one. He, yes. Okay, so it's about that then. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. There I you don't go. know if it's any good. I just remember the poster for it, which is a weird, not really train robbery related thing of Phil Collins standing there holding a newspaper and some flowers. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so Phil Collins, um, he was involved in the soundtrack to this as well as acting in it. The other song uh, on the soundtrack was um, Two Hearts, which oh, was another Phil Collins number one hit off the, in America off this soundtrack <laughs> sure. album. So not in Australia, so I won't talk about it. Um, but yeah, so Collins, apparently he didn't, he was a bit unsure about acting in this film because he was a child actor apparently oh, okay he uh featured he does in... look like a giant baby yeah <laughs> absolutely um he performed in uh the chitty chitty bang bang film <laughs> so Christ. so okay. it's uh it's all sure. good stuff yeah um but yeah so the film was apparently a box office flop but there you go collins himself said it was quote an excellent film end quote as you'd say, bang, bang. Yeah. Old Buster. <laughs> Buster, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so... But Phil Collins himself apparently is one of only three recording artists, um, the other two being Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, to have sold over 100 million albums as part of a band and yep. a solo. Oh, both. Sorry, combined. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I think combined. combined. Yeah. Okay, that is kind of interesting. Yeah, he was in Genesis, wasn't he? That's correct, yeah. So, for half of their career, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And he also played a Coke dealer on an episode of Miami Vice. Yes. Uh, some would say that Phil managed exactly one good song in his entire career of 100 million albums, <laughs> which is uh, coming in the air tonight. Yeah. And that was featured in the first... Uh, double episode of Miami Vice in quite an iconic scene, which doesn't involve Phil Collins in any way. It's just the song uh, playing, yeah. two cool guys while they drive a Ferrari through town. It works <laughs> very well. Yep. Uh, yes, within that song, and you know, even that so needed Miami Vice and a drumming gorilla to really kick it along. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that song got back in the charts in New Zealand after that TV commercial. You know. It's yep. a Cadbury one with a drumming monkey. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. Absolutely. So that was the additional song um, from this week, uh, thanks to the Kent Music Charts. Um, so yeah, look, we uh, wrapping up um, other songs from the year. Um, number twos. Yep, some of the number twos um, include Better Be Home Soon by Crowded House. Mm-hmm. Doctoring the TARDIS by the Time Lords. Later, Caliph. Caliph. Um, All Fired Up by Pat Benatar. The Only Way Is Up by Yaz and the Plastic Population, which is, should have been a number one, and A Groovy Kind of Love by Phil Collins. Don't forget Stutter Rap, which is, um, No Sleep Till Bedtime oh, by Morris yeah. Minor and the Majors. 
which I know every single lyric of still, <laughs> including the weird talking parts about no how sleep. the Beastie Boys stay up too late. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry, I said for a group no of people. No sleep till bedtime, Ben. No sleep till bedtime, yep. Um, and and yeah. I would also say that every single one of those songs is better than I Should Be So Lucky, Rick Astley and Kokomo. Oh, absolutely. I'm just looking at some of the other ones in that made to top 10. Don't Be Cruel, Cheap Trick, Love in the First Degree. Um, Guilty. By the bat. By <laughs> exactly. When Will I Be Famous and I Are You Nothing by Bross. Oh, Bross. I Want Your Love by Transmission Vamp. I remember that. Yep. Uh, Wendy James was uh, very attractive when I was a child, yes. I think. And, uh, yep. The and year of Bross. You're, also, you're also forgetting um, Kylie Mole. It's so excellent. <laughs> or are you? <laughs> Um, and the Australian Olympians, um, we are not alone. Which is um, not, which is a bunch of Australian celebrities getting together <laughs> to perform a song to raise money um, for the 1988 Australian Olympians. Where was it? Seoul. Seoul. It yep. was the year of Seoul. Yeah. It was the year of Seoul. So the Australian Olympians um, features uh, Richard Wilkins. So you know it's good. <laughs> you know it's a very good song that he's involved in that. So yeah, absolutely. So that's some of the bonus. Um, didn't make it to number one songs. Um, and a lot of those, as you said, Tom, are significantly better than some of the shit that was on this year's list. So yeah. yeah. But we missed out on Kylie Mole and the Australian Kylie Mole, so not yeah. all bad. Kylie Mole's like a Kylie Minogue kind of <laughs> piss take, I guess. No, Play, no, no. No, it's she like was, a teen a teenage girl. She was a character off this dumb sketch show called The Comedy Company yep. who was, yeah, just a high school girl who talked like high school girls were supposed to talk like. Sorry, I mean her name was like probably oh, a Kylie Minogue yes, parody. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically a middle... It was a middle-aged lady taking the piss out of her daughter, I think, was yep. the kind of idea of it, you know. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And was it, um, was one of, I can't remember who played the, 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 the Kylie Mole character. But. Name a single member of the cast of the comedy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair point. Um, absolutely. So, yes. Uh Thank you. That's the end of the Bicentennial special. Yes. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, I... Very impressed. <laughs> now go and listen to Stutter Rap, No Sleep Till Bedtime. Absolutely, it's very good.